Hey, hey, man, how you doing? It's a pretty groovy pad you got. Uh, thank you. I know I'm talking a little '60s, but it's me, Cool '90s Dan. Oh, sure. I talk '60s because <laughs> '60s culture is still so right. prevalent in the '90s. Because yeah. we're, because my generation's entire cultural identity is shackled to that of the boomers that control the media I consume. <laughs> So that's why I'm a little 60s, but it's me, cool 90s Dan. How you doing? Wow. Whoa, what is that? You have a little Ted Theodore Logan going on. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm in love with the 80s as well. What is that? Uh, that's my laptop. Whoa, is that magic? This is like space age times. <laughs> this is amazing. It's only been like 20 years. <laughs> I woke up from a coma. Everything's amazing. I'm sorry. It's like 30 years. Yeah. Don't you hate it when you say 20 years ago and you think you mean the 90s? Yes. Yes, I do. Where is this going? We can cut to the song now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sadie Hawkins Pod. Hello. That opening. Oh, I really <laughs> expected you to keep the voice <laughs> going. Nineties Dan would still be here. Your actual voice was so jarring. <laughs> you were so comfortable with Nineties yeah. Dan. Yeah. <laughs> um, that didn't. That bit didn't go exactly where I expected it to go. But I was like, I don't want to do it again. It came out. <laughs> it's its own thing now. We're gonna. We're gonna keep it. Sure. <laughs> so I was. Yeah, I was thinking like vinyl 90s like generational divides right because we got to talk a little bit about generational divides today especially as they apply to technology like no we're not going to get deep into that side of it but that is absolutely a theme that's a theme of this song flat out and then the way that we look back at this song is that is also the inherent theme you know what i mean it's yes so funny. because we've already moved on past. we've already moved on past the song <laughs> blank cds <laughs> And it's amazing. Yeah, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a bit. But um, we've had we've been sitting on all these voicemails. So let's try to listen to one someone who's been waiting a long time. Um, okay, here's one from Sean that he left back in March oh, a month ago, basically a month ago. Hey, Dan and Jeff, this is Sean from Pennsylvania. Just listened to the Mrs. Hippopotamuses, and I just had to say, you know, like, this song had a specific, a special, you know, like, thing for me because I actually grew up in Ohio, um, about 30 minutes away from where Reliant K started in Canton and everything. And so I always felt like a little extra kinship with them being from the same area as them and everything. So this song was like a really cool, nice thing. Uh, whenever I heard it, I'm like, oh, hey, look, a love letter to Ohio. I know it might sound weird to people who aren't from Ohio, but I also have a funny story about the um, OHIO chant. I don't know if it started with the Ohio State University, but it's kind of associated with them. Like it's a, like a chant at the football games and other sports games and everything with them. But it's been kind of, it's associated with the Ohio State University, but it's also just kind of like a general calling card for people from Ohio. And um, I tried explaining this to my wife once who was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and she thought it was weird, didn't believe it and everything. So there's one day we were traveling 
and uh, we stopped at a, a rest stop, and there was this bus full of Ohio State athletes. So there's like, there's no way that I could have planned this or anything, all right? So we were waiting in line for some food with some of these athletes, and I said, watch this. And I said, OH, and some of the athletes around us went, I-O. <laughs> My wife was just kind of like mind blown. She's like, I've never seen that happen before. I've never seen it in the wild. And it's like, I just proved her that it's legit a thing. It's a thing for Ohio people. And it was just a lot of fun, a little fun memory. So, yeah, I love that song. It's great for people who are from Ohio. Once again, keep up the good work. I'm still listening. Bye. That's so funny. This, the whole state isn't on this little inside <laughs> joke. It's like, it reminds me of when Pee Wee Herman is like, talking to Dottie on the phone right. she doesn't believe he's in Texas and he's like hold on the stars at night are big and bright oh Jessica almost dropped her I tea I was trying to she, clap she, and the, the call to clap along to the stars of Texas was so strong that she was literally just gonna let her mug fall from Texas. her hands <laughs> We lived in Texas for for a hot minute, like a month. So yeah, it was. <laughs> you couldn't walk down the street though and just go. The stars at night are big and bright. Nobody stopped and went <laughs> deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> it was a bummer, actually. Yeah, kind of like how you can't actually park the car in Harvard Yard. No, you can't. Jessica was so upset that you can't park the car in Harvard Yard, and I'm like, no, Harvard Yard is like. A park where people sit and have lunch and read their books. <laughs> it's it's an actual yard. I know, and I'm not even entirely sure which one is Harvard Yard because if you go to the Harvard area in Cambridge, there's a big park that's sort of like one of the centerpieces of driving through the area, and then there's the actual campus of Harvard that you can walk through. Even if you're just there shopping in the area, you could kind of like cut through the campus to get to different sections of malls and stuff in the area so i'm never sh really sure which is the harvard yard or if it even exists if it's like if it's a if it's but just you from pointed the song. it out to me once we i always together. assumed it was the main park i always assumed it was the main park but i don't but then later on in my you life you just I was danny like, lied to me well i didn't i because as a kid i'm like oh park the car in harvard yard and in my mind when my parents as i was a kid when we drive through the harvard area like going to other stuff I'd be like, oh, that must be Harvard Yard. <laughs> and then later on in life, I'm like, oh, wait, that, I'm talking about the park now. So people might actually be able to park their car there. So I went from thinking the tr that I was living the truth to finding out from you I was living no, a I lie to now finding park. out no, that the, I... The, no, the two places I'm talking about you can't park okay. in. Okay. They're parks. One is a college campus and one is 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 a park. So neither one can you park on. Okay, I don't know what to tell you. I did get to park. There's a church. I don't remember the name of the park that I'm thinking of, but the park right off of Harvard. There's a church there, and one time I went to see Godzilla. Fi oh, big tie-in with HBO Max right now. I went to see Godzilla: Final Wars at the Brattle Theater with a group of friends, including Johnny, who we often talk about, and Dan, who was the lead singer of the local ska band Good for Life, and he knew this guy that worked at the church that was right there. So we got to park basically on the sidewalk of the church. And I was like, oh, nice. I feel like we're going to get a ticket, but <laughs> he said we're good. And it was right <laughs> along the park that I always thought was Harvard Yard. So it's the closest I ever came to parking on Harvard Yard. Sorry, I'm really, I'm really distracted. You have this brand new aggressively white beard hair oh. that's just like just popped up this morning, I think. <laughs> 
I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's my fault. I Speaking know. of stress, just a quick side note. We do have another voicemail to get to in a second, but I'm taking, I, I announced this on my personal Twitter, but I'm taking a partial uh, social media respite. I'm not, I'm basically, all that means is I deleted Twitter and Facebook from my phone and it ties back to this song so well. I said to myself, I got to make social media like 2002 again laptop only like the 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 young the young millennials or the older millennials of whom this song that we're talking about this week was directed you would when you came to social media and dming and iming you had to set aside time every day to sit at your computer your desktop and decide i'm going to do instant messaging right now i'm going to do myspace and early facebook right now and then you'd go off with your life and it wouldn't follow you everywhere. And I'm realizing I'm having trouble with social media in the post-COVID world. So 2002 social media. So like, you mean like live journal before you went off to play The Sims and mm-hmm. pod racing? Exactly. And- now you could debate if for our generation it was healthy to just be sitting at a computer desk for like six hours. But the thing it is... It gets you ready for the workforce. It gets you ready for the workforce. <laughs> And we didn't have the kind of stresses that come with social media now because, like, I don't know, no. like, to, to me, and I know there's, like, that Netflix documentary about the real problems with social media and, like, the real intricate science of how it's changing our brains and stuff. But when it simply comes to, like, the fact that it's here, I'm holding up my phone, in my pocket all day long, following me into my regular life, I was like, I gotta, I'm calling it office hours. I'm doing social media office hours. If I want to do Twitter and Facebook, I got to do it on the computer like it's 2002. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But Instagram really gets you because they're (laughs) they're basically app only. Like you can do some stuff on the website, but you can't really post easily. You can post if you spoof your browser into saying that it's an iPhone. Like that's possible, but it doesn't really work half the time. Like movies, you can't really upload video. So, yeah, it's just social media is so stressful. I got rid of Facebook over a year ago now and I'm happy. I don't like I I just deactivated, but I'm like, I could delete it. I don't have any intention of going back. And I took I took Twitter off my phone, which I do. I do every now and then anyway. So I just got rid of it off my phone. And so now every now and then I'll just like log in on a laptop like you just to see if if anything's happening that I need to know about. (laughs) At this moment that we're talking, speaking of social media, Brady is off harassing Reliable Josh. Because <laughs> Josh sent me a DM of a DM he got from Brady, but he doesn't know who Brady is. Because Josh made a joke about the birds and the B-sides. Uh-huh. And then a couple of our specific listeners who have already heard the episode where we're like, it's bird and B-sides. Because that was a revelation to us. Right. And how it is posted wrong on Apple Music and other forms. Like, people who type it in just thought it's birds and the B-side. But Brady, I guess, like, sent him, like, a middle finger emoji and stuff. (laughs) But he was joking. But Josh didn't know who's this guy harassing me. And I had to explain that's our one of our biggest listeners. He was that's our, our first patron. That's our corporate right. overload, overlord. Jeez, <laughs> Brady is a bit of an overload sometimes. This is, this is what you. This is what we get for recording the podcast first thing in the morning. He's coming at us now. Uh oh. <laughs> so uh, one more voicemail. This is from Joel, who I forget is in Australia, so he can't actually call our voicemail line. So he left a voice memo to our email 
and it got all chopped up but he's got a really good point that i do want to play so i'll play some of this and if i have to sum up what he's saying i'll do that hi jess this is joel or joel polk i just wanted to respond to your most recent episode on be my escape the part two uh so at first i was kind of on the page that it's a song about god but there are a couple of lines that really speak that in my head um yeah, it's hard to get exactly what he's saying. This is kind of amazing, though. I like it. <laughs> but he, there is a point that's I think that's really good here that does come through clearly uh, in a second. But uh, I came to a realization just while listening to your episode recently, and so I thought, yeah, um, so you is referring to God is trying to save my skin. I love this. My, this my is so lynchy. So <laughs> it is. It's like we're in the red room, the black room, the white room. What are they? Basically, Joel's point right here uh, is that he's saying <laughs> this is a lyric that was one of the main things last week, the last two weeks, but last week especially, when I was really like having a hard time where anyone would say this song is only about God or whatever, and I would get like kind of defensive. Right. No one gave me any crap for it last <laughs> week, but whatever. I still see it as relationships with people but through the lens of your relationship with christ whatever the big lyric i got stuck up on on trying to make that about your relationship with god and i couldn't was that you were trying i was trying to save my own skin but so were you so were you Mm -hmm. joel here in this voicemail that got all chopped up he basically fixed that for me he said that you were trying to save my skin is is basically a, a a confusing pronoun game right you i was trying to save my own skin but so were you parentheses trying to save my skin it was i just couldn't yes yeah yeah that totally fixed it for me i'm like okay that line is and i could not put it into words for proper words (laughs) for you to to get into your brain (laughs) right so i was like okay that that makes way more sense now uh, so thank you for for putting it into Danny terms. <laughs> yeah, let me see how much else I can figure out what he's saying here. Not even Danny terms, just generally better terms. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to see. Oh well, I mean, it's, he's. I mean, Joel is the genius here because the genius annotation like didn't oh, yeah. do a good job at explaining that at all. It just shows a picture of Jesus, and it's like, and he did save. His, he did save skin it is like didn't explain like he is saving it was just a picture yeah. of the crucifixion they didn't explain how the pronouns sorry that's letting me know the laundry's ready <laughs> it didn't explain how the pronouns worked in All that right. in that sentence but it, it makes way more sense now so let's see if we can hear more uh from this voicemail but really it's i'm trying to save my skin god is also trying to save my skin there's a the line you keep bringing up about I ask you to give what you already gave. But I think that that line is referring to the previous line, where it's God's already given up his life, and he's already done what he for you. You just need to accept that and work with that. He's already done it. You can't ask him to do it again. You can't ask, you can't ask him to die on the cross again. You should be asking, I guess, accept, well, accept that he died on the cross. See, so, yeah, on that, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's so good. It's like it's like the it's like the stems of a disco track yeah. or something. <laughs> Some Max Headroom going on in there. Yeah. So the thing he said second here wasn't as revelatory as the first one, but I get what he's saying. 
the um I can't ask you to give what you already gave. I also got hung up on that. I did see how that would be a conversation to God, but I got a little hung up on the idea of like, why would you ask God for forgiveness again when you already know he's given it to you? And Joel points out here very aptly that that's the idea is, you know, you're going to God again. And now I'm extrapolating a little on what I kind of heard Joel say in this voice now. But God, uh, God has already given you forgiveness, so you can't ask again because he's already given you forgiveness and you need to understand that and come to terms with it. That makes sense. Yeah, but I see what Joel's saying. It's like, you need to understand. You can't, he's saying, I can't ask him to give forgiveness because he already gave it. Yes, I guess that makes sense too. <laughs> I'm still a little iffy on that, but I totally, I completely understand how that's more of a spiritual line than I had trouble with the other line. Whatever. Moving on. <laughs> and uh, last top of the show business is something we have to talk about. Also goes back to last week, Be My Escape. So suddenly, like a thief in the night, <laughs> no man knows the day or time, most of Reliant K's music has been removed from TikTok. Oh, yeah. I was like, I was not sure where you were going with that. That's right. Yeah. It was really, really weird, the timing. So... For those maybe who didn't hear last week, you know, we hit on TikTok once in a while. We're not, I have TikTok on my phone, but I never really use it. Jessica does not have TikTok on her phone. And TikTok has web backups. Web, you can access most of the TikTok archives through your browser. So when you Google a Reliant K song, you'll probably get the TikTok web page for all of the posts to that song. And you can watch them without a TikTok account. Uh, Be My Escape had more TikToks than there were song meaning posts, which is significant because song meanings was a huge forum back in the days of Vinyl Countdown, back in the days of burning your CDs. And the thing was, all of the Be My Escape, many, not all, many of the Be My Escape TikToks we found, some of them were suggestive, not like actually suggestive, not by a reasonable person's metric like some of them were just like some pole dancing showing a little skin in a cosplay not really that bad but there was one that you wouldn't ever assume you'd see when looking at Reliant K stuff it was a pet snake crawling on an actual like dildo <laughs> right yep really weird to see but funny we laughed oh and the infamous uh uh cosplayer girl who said and like denied all accusations to the otherwise who said that Reliant K is Mormon. Right. She's like, I heard Reliant K is Mormon. They're Mormon. And she defended her position on every reply and eventually turned off comments. And she was wrong. They are not Mormon. No. She's just completely wrong. That was also. I forgot. Would be my escape. On that same topic. I forgot to mention that in my uh, who I am hates who I've been deep dive like at the very bottom of like my last page of google search results it was like reliant k is mormon like it was like i got like that an article came up and i was like wait what (laughs) and the the reliant k is mormon like false rumor seems to mostly just originate from this one tiktok right so the timing was just astronomical because who knows why Reliant K's music was mostly taken down from TikTok. All that remains as of uh, a day before we recorded was the live album 
Bird and the B-Sides so we can check if there are any <laughs> vinyl count on TikToks and uh, Forget and Not Slow Down. And we know Forget and Not Slow Down has like different copyright yeah. holders than all the rest of their discography because so often Forget and Not Slow Down isn't found in certain countries. Right, and it's and not on, on Apple streaming Music, services. yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, whoever owns like the majority of Reliant K music uh, publishing, which is not necessarily Reliant K, it's not Reliant K, just took it all down. But why? <laughs> How did this happen? And the the part that made it like just so unbelievable was the fact that we had just talked about all the Be My Escape TikToks that we bothered to find. And I was going in back into that TikTok page to like use a, you know, a, a, a TikTok downloader, like not something that TikTok would want you to use, but use right. a TikTok downloader <laughs> to download a bunch of the videos and repost them with credit on our social media and say, I wasn't going to post the snake one. Right. I, I was right. maybe going to make right. a joke about go look for the snake one yourself. But I like, I was really looking forward to posting the one about the guy at Target who's upset that like sports cards and Pokemon cards had a two purchase limit. Right. That's so funny. But they're all gone. It was, it was crazy. And it took me a minute to even believe it. Because on TikTok, they're called sounds. So when you go into, if you have, if you still have the link, which we had in our notes, you click the link for the Be My Escape thing, and it's like, this sound is not available in your region or country or whatever. Now, are those TikToks still there just without the music no, so we gone. can't find it? Or they delete the TikToks The themselves? TikToks are just blocked or whatever. I'm, oh, okay. I assume they must still have, they're probably... Like a copyright strike thing. Yeah, but it just says this sound is not available on TikTok. Hmm. So I assume that they're probably still on everyone's existing accounts. And when I posted this, one person said, and I didn't go in and double check, but one person was like, you don't think it was to get rid of the similar videos, do you, Reliant Gay? And like, because I'm sure some people don't like that, but I'm like, I don't think so, because oh, that's all I her own that. music. Yeah. So, but part of me was thinking, like, did someone, okay, I don't actually think it was because of our podcast. <laughs> the timing is just so insane. And there was a thing on Blink-155 once where they went to Mark Hoppus's Animal Crossing Island when you could start visiting Strangers Islands with a code. And then the next day after they posted that podcast, Mark Hoppus nuked his island. <laughs> and like the timing there is just too... And that's such a specific thing. It's really just his personal thing. Someone probably sent him a message or whatever. But mostly I'm thinking my theory is like maybe someone, either Reliant K or someone who works with Reliant K or something was like... We don't like some of these TikToks, maybe especially the one with the snake, maybe especially the one that's just wholesale making up lies about us that's actually spreading out. Yeah. And people are saying it like it's true and it has no basis in reality. So just crazy. Cra or maybe it just has nothing to do with it. Maybe just like the copyright, like things that get taken down off Netflix and then reappear a week later. It's because there was like a contract mm -hmm. middle ground for that week. That happens on Amazon a lot. Like, I'll have a thing in my Amazon, yeah. and then it disappears from Prime for a week, and then it's back. Yeah. So, yeah. Weird. Just weird, funny, awkward timing that that <laughs> happened when it happened. But why are we talking about TikTok? That's such a nowadays kind of thing. Let's talk about something <laughs> that all the kids don't even know about. It's called vinyl. What is this? Is this a Frisbee? Except, except vinyl's having a resurrection now. Right. Yeah, for the last, like, 10 years, it's yeah. been increasing. It's probably one of the things that's... They, I mean, I've seen lots of people say this. I don't know the record industry or the retail side of the record industry, but I always hear how vinyl is kind of, like, saving record stores in their current incarnation. Right. 
every time I think Final Countdown, all I can think about is Arrested Development. Because they use the Final Countdown. Yeah. Uh, for I don't remember all the characters' names anymore. Job. For Job, for Job's <laughs> music, uh, music, his magic show always uses that famous. Do 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 do. Yeah, oh, hold on, I'll play it because we're gonna talk a little bit about Europe. So this song is called Vinyl Countdown. It was, uh, it's a song about vinyl written from the point of view of 2003. This song was written in 2003, released on a seven inch originally. A limited edition uh, mono versus stereo released seven inch. It had um, and now it goes for like hundreds of dollars on yeah. on eBay. So in some previous episode, I think it might have been our Five Iron Frenzies, either dead or dying episode, or it could have been some other completely random episode. I got really confused about the release history of the vinyl countdown seven inch. Uh, but we figured it out, and I'm just going to summarize it here now. So the Vinyl Countdown 7-inch originally came out in 2003. It was really limited in pressing. It was sold basically just at shows and online. And it had the song Vinyl Countdown, the two Five Iron Frenzies, either dead or dying versions, and We're Nothing Without You. And I had been confused for a while because since Reliant K has that other 7-inch series... With the plain cardboard sleeves that just have the sticker on the top and they're numbered. And most of those seven inches are just re- special little packages of re-releases of existing songs. Or in the case of like the holiday EPs, it's the vinyl version of those holiday EPs with a different name. So like uh, Truly Madly Deeply is called... Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's called like... Uh, it, there was... Uh... Friday the 13th right. or something so, like that. February 13th. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only have a Reliant K podcast. I should know these well, things off the top of my head. I remember that the creepier ep <laughs> on vinyl is called, uh, you just knocked it out of my head. I had it once. Sorry. Second. Friday the 13th. It's called Friday the 13th because it's the 13th release in that series. And then the 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 Valentine's EP, Truly Madly Deeply, <laughs> was released as part of that special 7-inch series, and it's number 14 in the series, and it's got a different title. We're not talking about that right now. I don't need to look it up. That 7-inch series confused me because I thought that the Vinyl Countdown was like a complete re-release of the 7-inch, but it's not. The Vinyl Countdown is is like... It's a repackaged, complete, essentially different version of the original vinyl countdown seven inch do you know what i'm saying yeah yeah so that's what used to confuse me if you go get yourself one of the seven inch series relying k with the cardboard sleeves copies of vinyl countdown you're not getting an original copy of the vinyl countdown that was released in 2003 especially because the mix is completely different like all bird and the b-side songs that were previously released they are all remastered for the bird and the b-side cd and the repressed seven inch with the cardboard sleeve has this has something more like the CD mix on it. Anyway, that always used to throw me off was the release history of this song. So we have a guest this week, and it's Brad Moist of Goatee Records, and he was actually the person who founded Mono versus Stereo. Uh, I'll let him talk about it more when we get to the guest segment. But basically, Mono versus Stereo was started because Reliant K was pretty much just the only rock band on Goatee Records. And Toby Mac really 
didn't want to sign more rock bands because, you know, Toby Max from DC Talk, they were more about hip hop and pop and gospel. So then Brad Moist is like where they're missing out on these chances to sign all these great rock bands. So he goes and he says, I want to start a sub-label, a, a subsidiary of Goatee that is specifically going to be our rock branch. We'll have a smaller budget and it's going to be called Mono vs. Stereo. And they agreed and he started Mono vs. Stereo. And this 7-inch EP was the second release under Mono vs. Stereo, which is another thing I wasn't really sure of. I don't want to take all of the thunder away from say. the interview. But this is just <laughs> the one that I definitely want to mention because... It was a confusing thing for me for the longest time. Like, why, how does Mono vs. Stereo exist and their relationship with Reliant K? And basically, like, it was the rock label of Mono vs. Stereo. And, um, yeah. And this was their second release. Goatee. Goatee. Yeah, Mono vs. Stereo <laughs> was the rock version yes. of Goatee Records. So, this song originally existed in 2003 on that seven inch, I have always regretted that I was like, I saw the seven inch happening. I was probably like on a mailing list or I was like, you know, Mm -hmm. checking in with Reliant K's website. This is, you know, before social media. So it's not like I had a, a wall or a feed to show me things were coming up, but I definitely believe I had a chance to get the original seven inch and I didn't. And I've always regretted it. The mix is different also. And luckily, someone put the 2003 mix of Vinyl Countdown on YouTube. So we'll check that out in a minute. But uh, what do you have about the EP and the song? So I was going to pull up the Wikipedia for this. It has its own Wikipedia. The Vinyl Countdown is the fourth EP by Christian rock band Reliant K, released exclusively on a clear red 7-inch vinyl record on Mono vs. Stereo. It was released in 2003, a few months after the band's third full-length album, Two Lefts Don't Make a Right But Three Do, was released. The vinyl countdown was followed a few months later by the band's Christmas CD, Deck the Halls, Bruise Your Hand, giving the band three releases in one year, and also the second recording on MVS. The 7-inch was dedicated to superfan Jesse Alkery, with a note in the bottom corner of the vinyl sleeve reading, Here's to Jesse Alkery. Jesse is a good friend of lead singer Matthew Thiessen and the rest of the band and received the dedication because he helped write the title track off the release, The Vinyl Countdown. Now, I also found elsewhere that this was part of a contest. Something about Jesse Alkery like winning a contest or something. And I could not find anything about that. Hmm. In my deep dive, but it's listed on because we're there also uh, there's a Reliant K section on the Less Than Jake wiki, right? Which which notes this and it says citation needed um, on the on the regular Wikipedia for the song. It says citation needed. So I cannot find anything about this alleged contest. The only contest I found when I searched for Reliant K contests uh, were. Reliant K and McDonald's contest slash promotion. Reliant K is in the running for McDonald's current contest promotion where the winning act will have their music featured in the fast food chain's TV commercial as well as the winner's image plastered on over 300 million French fry containers worldwide. I feel like they didn't voting. get that or we would see pictures of that to today. With voting already underway at 
uh, mcdlive.com. The polls close on October 31st. The band that brought you five score and seven years ago, mm-hmm, two lefts don't make a right, but three do, and the anatomy of tongue-in-cheek, also recently kicked off a 30-city co-headlining tour with Switchfoot and are anticipating the release of their first ever full-length Christmas album, Let It Snow Baby, Let It Reindeer. The album scheduled for release by Capital Music Group slash Goatee on October 23rd features Reliant K's take on 10 holiday classics and six original songs. And this was posted September 18th, 2011. And Reliant K did do a McDonald's sponsored tour. We've seen that footage of them playing uh, In Love with the 80s and Faking My Own Suicide with a big McDonald's banner behind them. Well, because McDonald's has like... They have Christian like tours that they sponsor. That's right. Because they have we, a specific we Christian bought tour. a VHS tape because we thought it was hilarious of the McDonald's gospel tour. Right. And we haven't actually watched it, but we just thought it was funny. <laughs> um, and then the other thing I found was a blog on bzpower.com from January 11th, 2011, Reliant K Christmas Ornament Contest, uh, post by Boy one I received a poster in the mail today and didn't know why, so I went online to Reliant K's fan club website and remembered that I had entered their Christmas contest. Well, it turns out I won. The first contest I've ever won. And even though the winner of the contest was just posted today, and it says I won't receive my poster for one to two weeks, I got it today, lol. So yeah, anyway, woohoo, my first winning, my first time winning a contest. Until next time, remember, Disco is in this year. Jord Boy won. Nice. Is this your whole deep dive? Are we basically doing your deep dive first? No, I have I have more. Oh, okay, good, good. Oh, that's right. You told me some of your deep dive stuff. Uh, so also on the Wikipedia, I just went down to personnel. And it says, additional production, Brett Schoenman of Fillmore. And it said he did drums on everything except on the EP. He did drums on the song Vinyl Countdown and both Five Iron Frenzy is Dead or Dying songs. But then underneath it says the credits in the booklet of the Bird and the B-Sides showed that Fillmore drummer and former Reliant K fill-in drummer Brett Schoenman played drums on every song of this EP except We're Nothing Without You. So my only question, and I believe that, my, my question is those credits apparently, because we can't we don't have an original copy of the of the seven inch from 2003 in our hands. Was Brett the drummer of the actual EP other than We're Nothing Without You? Or did he do any like like redubbing of drums on the Bird and the B-Sides? Because those songs were redone. I actually... Not redone. Well, the thing is they're remixed for sure. But sometimes you can, you know, you can redub in instruments if they're just if you feel like they're not good enough when you go back and do stuff i think they probably did stuff like that for the gold versions of the second and third Mm. album it's very very possible but they're not going to give us specific credits to explain where or when they did or didn't do that so i'm just curious i just want to know why were the credits on bird and the b-sides but they weren't on Apparently they weren't on the EP. Maybe yeah, because, I saw that too. Yeah. yeah, maybe because the EP, like you, sometimes don't put full credits on a vinyl on a seven inch. Um, whatever. I'm not sure. I did DM Schneck and I asked because we asked him when he was on the show. Did you have anything to do with redubbing any parts 
on the gold mixes of the first, uh, the, the second and third album? And he said no. He said at the time we talked to him about that, he said no. I was wondering if because it's a couple years later and he was more thoroughly in the band, I said, did you remember re-recording any parts or dubbing over any parts of songs on the second half of Bird and the B-Sides that were remixed from their original sources? And in this case, he said, I can't recall doing anything like that. Okay. He wasn't as like firmly no as he was about the gold stuff. But I do remember when he, I'm pretty sure when we talked to him, and we'd asked him about the two gold records. He'd only been in the band for like a year or two. So he, mm-hmm. he was like kind of, he told us like he had nothing to do with that. Like that was done right. over there with Mark and the Mats. Right. And he had he wasn't even like around for that. But I'm like, he was on half of Bird and the B-Sides. Did he do any little parts to fill in stuff that they were remastering for these B-Side tracks? And he said he couldn't remember. So despite the, so we haven't talked about the song that much yet. But despite the fact that I missed out on owning a copy of the 7-inch at the time, which I could have done because I did have record players from early on, but I wasn't like a huge vinyl collector back in the late, back in the mid, from the mid-90s to the early 2000s up through like 2006, I would have a record player or I'd have my grandma's record player. And if I was at a record store and I saw like a cool record from a band I liked like a Green Day or something or they might be Giants or Weezer and it was kind of cheap I would grab it because it looked cool like I had I actually have this very rare seven inch I think it's a seven inch I haven't looked at it in a long time I believe it's a seven inch of uh Green Day live at Gilman Street and it's one of the first records that I bought and I used to listen to it on my on my grandma my mama I used to listen to it on <laughs> mama's record player because it had rare performances that weren't available on any other CD. And When I Come Around, it's one of the first recordings of When I Come Around. And it's called, like, it's got a different, slightly different title. It's like, Here I Come Around or something like that. And I remember the day I bought it in probably, like, 1996 or something at a Newberry Comics. When I brought it up to the counter, the clerk went, Whoa, <laughs> we have had this in the store for a long time. <laughs> And, he, and I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, look at that catalog sticker. Because uh, Newberry Comics in the Boston area, when they were more of a record store, they've actually had to revert to being more of a comic book store in more recent days because the music industry has changed with physical media. Back when they really were a record store, despite their name, they had a very specific uh, catalog sticker that was on every sticker, that was on every CD. And when he looked at the cataloging sticker for the store, he's like, I haven't seen that sticker in years. And I was like, awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So that was like my first experience with buying vinyl. So going forward to from like 1996 to 2003, I should have gone and bought a copy of the Reliant K 7 inch, but I didn't. But then luckily at the time in 2003, Fans like immediately made digital copies and shared them on Kazaa and, you know, not Spotify, you know, they shared them where you could get MP3s. Right. There were, there were rare MP3s you could find of the mix long before Bird and the B-Sides came out. Yeah, I was, it's funny. I remember like listening to this song and feeling like a disconnect from it because I was just super into like everything retro when I was in like high school and stuff. So I remember being like 15, I think maybe. And while I was like burning my Apple, you know, 
music onto my blank CDs, I was also listening to my my parents' record collection. Like I came across their record collection in the basement or something, and I was like, "This is awesome! I want to I want to listen to all this." And so they went out to Restoration Hardware and bought me a new record player that was like it looks like it's in the little suitcase like it's you know it's cute it doesn't sound amazing but right. it, you know it's it's the all in built all in one kind of thing where the speakers are in it and i remember sitting and just like listening to my mom's herman hermit herman's hermit's <laughs> records for hours <laughs> that's funny um so by like 2001 or 2002 I asked for a proper, like, hi-fi record player for myself so I could listen to, like, the small collection of records that I did have and so I could also go out and start getting a few more records that I wanted. And at the time, before the big record boom of the the mid to late 2000s, I was able to get, like, copies of uh, Fishbone's Reality of My Surroundings, like an original pressing of that when nobody wanted it. And now that goes for really expensive. That goes for like $100, like an original pressing. It was recently repressed finally a couple of years ago, which maybe brought the price down. But you, it was expensive. We went to Toxic Toast Records in Orange County once. And I was talking about... And it's, that's, a, that's like the biggest ska, specifically biggest ska uh, vinyl store you can go to. It's called Toxic Toast. It's named after a Boston's song. Um, and I was talking to... We were talking to the clerk. You were there with me. And I, I mentioned that I had a copy of reality of my surroundings and he was like oh man how did you get that where'd you how much did you pay and i'm like i got it in like 2002 or something <laughs> i probably paid like 20 bucks and he's like oh yeah, um, I wasn't buying in high school. I wasn't buying a lot of like record records. I didn't I wasn't going into a lot of like music specific stores except like the Virgin Mega Store downtown Disney and they did not really have a vinyl section there. So, when I did, I would go like my parents were really into antiquing, so we'd go in antique stores and I'd look for records there and what I started was I started collecting Disneyland records. So, we have a massive collection of seven inches of the storybook with the storybooks the records with the storybooks where like on side a it's the story and then side b is the music that they play like underneath the story and i've got like i had um i think i have all of the star wars ones that were originally released and i've got like um there was one done for the haunted mansion as like a tie-in with the ride and there's some really there's some really cool stuff there but that was like what i was really into and then i started really just like that's what I focused on collecting vinyl wise when I was younger. That's cool. You're so cool. We ble- <laughs> Jessica went to take a sip of water. <laughs> Even though your records are like Disney records, I'm like, still, you were into it early on. That's cool. Um, the, uh, the irony of this song at the time in 2003 when it was first released is that it's on a limited seven inch that's like specifically only through avenues that fans can get it. I don't go and get one. And it ends up being ripped to the internet in MP3s that you can find on trading sites. And that's how I got to hear the song until it finally showed up on Bird and the B-Sides. <laughs> because, so funny. Yeah, because there's so much to talk about with the lyrics of this song. So first of all, I guess we should talk about the music. It's just a cool, classic, Reliant K, sort of pop punk, you know, adjacent pop rock sort of cool part a cool song (laughs) i'm thinking all the different parts i'm thinking about how it's got like it's just like a it's like a pop punk sort of song and how it's got that like slowed down 
that lower tempo part towards the end, like the slow pretty part, basically, yeah. as I would call it, which is what like Mark Hoppus will say in live recordings for uh, What's My Age Again, where he's like, <laughs> it's the slow pretty part. <laughs> like, that's what I think of when like a pop punk song kind of like slows down and just gets kind of like arpeggios there's a lot of arpeggios in that oh. middle part i only know that because daniel <laughs> talked about it on something else we were talking about oh hardcore speaking stuff. of daniel what about him didn't he hit us up on on uh, you were telling me about this on twitter to say something about listening to music based on age oh it was about the stephanie meyer oh, uh, right. playlist when i reposted when i posted on our social media about stephanie meyer's playlist that you're supposed to listen to when you read new moon he said something to the extent of like she was 40 when this music came out and that's like she was way too old to be listening to this music at the time. And I was like, yeah, but she also inspired E.L. James to write fan fiction <clears throat> in her 50s that turned into Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, that's a little worse. <laughs> like if you're in your 40s listening to music that's meant for kids 30 or, you know, 20 to 30 years younger than you. What you know, I, I don't see how that's necessarily weird, but yeah, the E.L. James thing—that's really weird because she's like, I'm gonna take these high school characters <laughs> and write them as creepy executives and stuff with BDSM. <laughs> Young executives. Young with executives. BDSM. <laughs> um. But yeah, I don't know. I think that if you're into popular music, you can stay into popular music regardless of what age you are. It's just what you're into. It's art, you know. That's so lame. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so this is like a cool... So so there's... I, I don't know. There's not much to say about the music. It's just like a cool Reliant K song. It really does sound like more of the first three albums than... It, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is... Yuppers. Yuppers, which is, you know, it's this is like a nice little like last vestige of that anatomy and two lefts sound, right? And then... We get right into mm-hmm after that. I remember hearing an interview with Mike Durnt of Green Day, when I think of vinyl as well, uh, in like the late 90s. And this was actually like podcasts before podcasts. Like it was a real player audio interview with Mike Durnt. At oh, a, wow. <laughs> a real th- player interview. This is the thing is like podcasts <laughs> became known as podcast sidebar. Podcasts became known as podcasts once iPods came around. But I found audio interviews and audio like radio shows downloadable on the internet, you know, in the early 2000s, maybe even in like 99. So the idea of podcasts has obviously been around for a long time. But this one thing with Mike Durnt was like, and this is in that era of Green Day where they're between the 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 success and the come down of Dookie and before American, well before American Idiot, like four years before American Idiot. So this is actually their biggest lull as a band in their, in their more famous time. And they're like, yeah. And so you could, you probably could get to Green Day easier. They were playing smaller venues for this middle time of like Nimrod and stuff. And he was like, everyone brings me their tapes and now people are starting to bring me their CDRs, but like, why don't any of the, you know, these little the kid, kid bands or high school bands right. is like, if one of these bands brought me a seven inch, then I would really give them like serious cred <laughs> yeah. and really check them out <laughs> because you know, seven inches were a major part of the punk scene. And, um, I don't know exactly in the history of, of recorded media. I guess that goes back to like maybe seven inches were cheaper 
back then. I'm talking about like back in the 70s and 80s. And like maybe it was easier to go get a seven inch pressed and cheaper when you're doing everything DIY, which is the opposite now. Seven inches are so expensive to print now. It's almost not worth it to bands. Like when you print a seven inch in 2021, it's like you're doing it for the love of getting this thing out to your fans because you can't make a profit. You literally can't make a profit for the cost to what you'd have to charge like $30 for a seven inch to even start to break even. This is what I hear on things like the Punk News podcast where they know more about this stuff. So that's why there aren't a lot of like bands specifically releasing seven inches unless they're bigger bands or they just want to put out something really cool for fans. Yeah, I don't, I think it was way cheaper because and I don't actually know if this is super real or not, but in, I would assume it is because of the neo-realistic nature of the artist, but they're in a Godard movie, and I think it's masculine, feminine, it might not be that. They, like, there's, they're in Paris, and they go to, like, a booth where you record a 7-inch. Right. So, yeah, it, it would be feasible to right. just, you know, produce a 7-inch, I guess, back right. then, and maybe easier than, you know, getting all of your big, you know, recordings equipment and paying for huge studio time to do, like, a, a tape or a CD. Right. The thing I hear now is like a lot of punk bands nowadays, if you want that cred, but also something cheap in physical media, that's why everyone's going towards cassettes. Because now cassettes have that like old school credibility that vinyl had, but cassettes are cheap to produce still. Like they're not hard to, they're they're still manufactured enough that they're not, the, the cost isn't prohibitive like making a seven inch where you can only go to a factory and all these factories nowadays, the few factories that are left in the world that produce vinyl, they're all so backed up that that's what, and, and people want vinyl so much. That's why vinyl new vinyl becomes so expensive nowadays is because there is a big demand. The demand for it doesn't meet the ability to supply basically like if there were more vinyl factories, there was a very famous vinyl factory right here in the Valley that just had to close and it probably just shrunk the market even more Mm. you know what i mean so that's why that's why a new copy of like a fleetwood mac album costs like 45 bucks or 50 or 60 bucks or like even a new ramones record costs like 40 bucks 40 bucks but new cassettes you can go out and get like a new cassette for five ten bucks still like brand new yeah so it's funny so there's two nostalgic tears you can go off from this song because i think this this song was so cool at the time in 2003 where I, you know, I had some visibility to vinyl, but then Reliant K is writing a song in 2003 to their listeners saying like, hey, why doesn't everyone still like vinyl? What's the deal? And, you know, Reliant K is a little older than me, but so they probably actually specifically remember having records in their house. Like I don't, my parents didn't really like music that much. We didn't have records sitting around. We didn't have, my, yeah, parents, no. my mom didn't really have a collection of records from her childhood. Like she had a few but nothing. And they were in like storage by the time I was a kid. Um, yeah, like ours were in the basement. And when we got married and we merged our vinyl collections, yeah. we our moms listened to the exact same kind of music in college. And so right. it's like we have like two copies of Cat Stevens, two copies of Billy Joel, two copies of like every Moody, Moody Blues, Blues album. Yeah. <laughs> so I loved the fact that they were like specifically and i kind of forget at the time in 2003 that i was a hey this is this i mean this isn't really against daniel's point of stephanie meyer but i was like two or three years older than probably the median reliant k fan age but it was such a statement in 2003 
when MP3s and Napster and Kazaa and all that stuff's really taking off, eMusic.com and you know iTunes is starting to come out with you know those have the sort of legal MP3s and even a thing like MP3.com, which was kind of like the the original version of SoundCloud, where you could like host your MP3s for free and have people they were legal MP3s for people to check out you know independent artists and stuff. That that's the heyday and that's how kids started experiencing their music then. And I was certainly experiencing my music that way as well. And you're burning it onto CDRs, and that's how you experience your music. But I was already, since I was born in 82, and I'd come up with CDs, and I'd had a little exposure to vinyl, I immediately understood that MP3s sounded worse than physical media. They sounded way worse, especially back then. Like, nowadays, the gap is closing with streaming sounding, you know, you lose some sonics or whatever with streaming if you don't have your settings right but for the most part streaming and youtube videos still sound as good as cds they're just losing a tiny bit of fidelity that most people don't care about but mp3s back then with that like digital warble it sounded like someone was drowning inside a radio station you clearly never had any hit clicks What was that? I don't remember that one. <laughs> so there were these little tiny cartridges that you put into this little tiny player. And they were all, they were not bands you would have listened to because I'm a bit younger. So right. it was like, you could have like Sync and Hoku and it played like 20 seconds of a song. And I don't remember, they were relatively expensive, but that was like a big deal thing. And I would, you would, you could like carry it around on a keychain because of course keychains were like a, you know, a, a big like fad in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And so you could get your in sync and it would play like bye 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 and then it would just stop and that's all you got of it and then you'd have to hit play and it would play it again but it sounded so bad yeah yeah that's what i'm saying that's a toy <laughs> that's, i don't remember this and that's why i don't remember it because that's a toy that's not like that's not even like a forgotten form of physical music media like the sony mini disc was like this thing that tried to usurp cds and it failed horribly this here, what is it called? Hero clicks? What Hit call- clips. Hit clips. Hit clips. That's just, that sounds like a toy. That's like imagine it is a toy. <laughs> it is. It's literally a toy. Like you had like the musical toothbrushes. Like can you imagine if like you're like man, I can't. I don't have a computer. I can't afford CDs. I get all my music through my musical toothbrush. Here, here's what they looked like. Yeah, that's a toy. Our internet's so slow. It's like not wanting to buffer. <laughs> Come on, show the picture. It's JPEG. It's appropriate that it's so JPEG. <laughs> Oh, and it came with the little, you, it was like a very early earbud. Like the little oh, headphones okay. went inside the ear, but they had the, those those gross little foam things uh, over it yeah. that you stuck inside your ear. And it was like. Now for Line K1 to be really cool, they should have released the vinyl countdown on. Here we go. Hit clips. We've got the Bahaman. We got pink. We have the A-teens. I totally had the A-teens one. This is like tricking your child. Backstreet to, This is like your kid wants a CD player, but you don't trust like the ability and the freedom they would have with that and who knows what they're going to listen to and borrow CDs from borrow Marilyn Manson CDs you're afraid so you give them this toy and you're like here you go this is your first CD player and you trick your kid like my first tablet and not even the ones that are actual right. tablets that play cartoons nowadays. Like Leapfrog. I mean, like Leapfrog or like fake, or like a fake computer or a fake phone that has candy in it. Oh man, I didn't realize they had hit clips 
a video one called Video Jockey. Right. Now, I didn't know about this one. Create your own music video. Edit dance routines for your whole Hit Clips collection. The graphics look like a Baby G watch. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you ever had like a. You, like a, a baby G watch or anything like no. that but I had one that had a little dolphin that was like the little pixelated dolphin like jumped over right. the thing this is a step down from watching fairly odd parents on your Nintendo on your Game Boy Advance you know what I mean this is like even less qualifies as physical media what are hit clips worth according to mom.com hit clips are worth five to twenty dollars now <laughs> <laughs> That's you know that 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 information exists on the internet because someone's trying to get rid of their crap, and they're like, these have got to be worth something. Yeah. These nope. are got nope. Uh, here we go. Hit Clips is a digital audio player created by Tiger Electronics that plays low fidelity mono one minute clips of. Okay, so it was a full minute. One minute clips of pop songs from exchangeable cartridges. It first launched in August 2000 with with 60 second microchip songs featuring Britney Spears in sync and Sugar Ray. Honestly, like there's no reason for something like that to exist except to trick your child into thinking they have their first CD or MP3 player. Uh, and they had the boom box. Ooh, the, <sighs> the dream groove machine. Look, you can get that for $22 still on uh, eBay. <laughs> so back to the song. The funny part about this song is the irony of how it's making a statement at teenagers of the year 2003 and saying, hey, you kids are too reliant on MP3s and burning CDs and doesn't... You're not reliant enough on Ks. And you're not reliant enough on Ks. Ks being the kilograms of vinyl, of, of wax that it takes to make these vinyl records. But even like as we were getting away from CDs, we were losing fidelity. You know that joke in I Love You Man where he's like, you never heard Rush? And then he starts playing Rush on his laptop on his on his uh, laptop computer and then like it sounds really bad and they're like trying to gather around and put their ears against the laptop (laughs) like there's this weird thing where like in by all throughout like from boomers up through the 90s people were concerned with fidelity they wanted their music to sound good if they if you loved music you wanted to experience it in the best way possible but then there's this thing and i'm not ragging on millennials because i'm a millennial but this was one of the worst things about millennials as far as stuff like this goes is they were like oh i can get every song i want for free and i can burn it onto a cd and play it in my car but that cd sounded like garbage because most of the mp3s you download would be in like 128 kilobytes and it would sound really bad like i said it would sound like it sounded like you're listening to the radio, but the radio station is flooded. That's how it would, how bad it would sound. And kids, and we didn't, and then we, and then that generation grew up and like, we'd stop having like cool hi-fi. And I know as, as technology shrunk, like the, 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 the room in our spaces had more value than having like a big stereo or something. But we, like somehow we lost, like all these stereo stores start closing, but we lost the care of like having cool technology good technology to be able to hear these things and to make sure that you're playing it in a format that those good speakers will actually play it in i think we're getting back towards that now finally because of like you know beats and headphones and i think a lot of celebrities as they create like headphone companies and speaker companies they are getting more towards fidelity and people are realizing that is important but i think there's this whole dark era of fidelity from pretty much like 1999 through something around like maybe 2014 or something. 
And it also kind of, you know, the, the rise of that dark time ending also correlates right with like the rise of vinyl becoming something that people wanted to buy again and realizing that it does sound better than CDs and vinyl really are like neck and neck in terms of what sounds better because there's certain fidelity on vinyl that you can't get on a CD and certain fidelity you can get on a CD that you can't get on almost anything else. So it just depends on the recording and stuff like that. I never like did the the illegal download music thing because I got a, a Mac when I was like 15. Right. And so I got iTunes and just purchased music through iTunes and right. then burned it onto CDs. And I don't remember it sounding that bad, but I wasn't as critical then. Obviously, I was listening to I had just upgraded from hit clips. Like <laughs> Right. Well, I think that's the that's, that might have been the problem for our generation is that like we whether it was legal or illegal and iTunes early iTunes was low compression because I remember criticisms and articles about why does iTunes insist on like only 192 kilobytes for these files and like all these upstart companies that tried to immediately compete with iTunes saying like you can get uncompressed formats or you can get way better compressions and stuff and like part of the reason why BitTorrent became big in the late in the early 2010s is because a lot of those like very private BitTorrent sites would be like you can get great fidelity mp3s through an illegal format that you can't get through the legal formats you know what I mean so a lot of people like cool people would go and give their money to the band and then go on to private BitTorrent sites and download good compression mp3s mm. or flack once it was available or i don't know what uncompressed formats existed before flack because i didn't get into it before then so yeah it's been this like climb back to thing and i guess if you're a kid growing up in the 90s or earlier and you're interested in music there's all these adults around you who give you their equipment and and share things with you and you realize fidelity is important but then when you're a kid growing up in the 2000s and a millennial then you just have a computer in front of you and you're like oh i can listen to every song ever right here but you don't care because you just have the access to it and no one's like oh well you could use the cd and you're like yeah but i don't want the cd it's all right here you know what i mean so then like we lost things sounding good <laughs> well it's a slow climb back to high fidelity and with that <laughs> we're gonna take our break okay if you enjoy Sadie Hawkins Pod, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and interact with the show by calling our voicemail line 402-95-SADIE. You can send an email to sadiehawkinspod at gmail.com and visit our Instagram and Twitter, which are both at sadiehawkinspod. You can also visit sadiehawkinspod.com for the link to our Tee Public Store for shirts, mugs, and stickers, including two brand new designs following in the history of all of Reliant K's logo parody merch, we have a Chick-fil-A parody design. And to prove to everyone that we are in fact the most punk rock podcast, we have a new Black Flag logo parody. You know, something that's original and that we could really call our own for once. We also want to thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash sadiehawkinspod. There's JR, Jarrett, Eric, Joel, Connor, Michael, Helen, Samantha, Roxanne, Jimmy Eat Pod, This Might Be a Podcast, Tucker, David, and Brady. You can sign up at our Patreon for bonus episodes, which include us reviewing the songs from KS for Karaoke and reading through the Complex Infrastructure book. Ooh. 
Treat yourself right in 2021 with Sadie Hawkins Pod, the door to a happy, healthy life. So you like Reliant K, do you? Well, what about They Might Be Giants? My name is Greg Simpson, and I host a They Might Be Giants fan podcast, and it's called This Might Be a Podcast. This Might Be a Podcast is a song-by-song podcast featuring a different guest every episode from normal fans like you and I, but also I've had guests such as John Darneal of The Mountain Goats, Justin McElroy of My Brother, My Brother and Me, Hutch Harris of The Thermals, Mike Park of Asian Man Records, Franz Nikolai of The Hold Steady, and Danny Weinkoff and Marty Beller of They Might Be Giants, and past drummers Dan Hickey and Brian Doherty. Search for Punk News. Or this might be a podcast on any podcast platform and you will find us. This might be a podcast brought to you by PunkNews.org. So uh, we didn't get into it yet. Let's do it now. As I mentioned, the original 2003 vinyl has a completely different mix than what everyone knows from 2008. And... Unlike, say, For the Band, where the second I heard For the Band on Bird and the B-Sides, I was like, WTF? What's going on? <laughs> they changed the song. Um, in this in this case, the only time I ever heard this vinyl count, the original vinyl countdown, was on those probably low compression MP3s back in 2003. So, and I didn't actually never, ironically, I never burnt that to a CD. I would just listen to it when I was sitting at the computer. So I didn't like he, for the band I heard all the time because I constantly played the Employee of the Month CD all the time. Right. So when I heard Vinyl Countdown, I was like, "Sounds good. Sounds the same to me. Couldn't <laughs> tell the difference." But now going back and hearing this 2003 vinyl rip that's uploaded by Derek, that's just their uh, YouTube name, Derek. Uh, it's clear. Actually, let's play. Oh, this and this is actually a rip of the entire. EP. It's an eight-minute rip of the entire EP, so when we do Nothing Without You, we'll be able to hear the differences there, too. But first, let's remind everyone what it sounds like on Bird and the B-Sides. So there's the version that everybody knows. Uh, and here is how it sounded in 2003. So the clearest thing, first of all, they added that little like hip hop thing right. as if a hip-hop record is playing for a second and then it ooh, stops that's added from burn the b-sides second is that the sound of the lead guitar sounds completely yeah more it sounds more punk sounds more raw it's, but very it's raw, way yeah. more raw yeah but that um that other that's what would you call that 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 other thing in the second guitar when it comes in that sounds pretty much the same yeah like i'm sure the mix might be polished but they definitely it it, it's it's bassier too without knowing enough about music engineering you could tell me they completely changed that first guitar 
they completely replaced it or they just polished up what they had. I can't tell. You know what I mean? Like, I can tell that when that, when that part comes in, I can tell that's the same part. But I can't entirely tell from my limited musical criti- yeah. critical ear yeah. if the first guitar is the same or not. Like if it's, they replaced I want to say it sounds different because it does sound a lot looser. It clearly sounds different. Yeah. yeah. So. And that's the other thing is they put Tyson's lyrics in the 2003 version through like a dirty filter. I'm assuming on purpose to me, and I and I have to assume that this isn't the mix of the YouTube video. You can hear the crackles. I think mm-hmm. that the crackles are actually from Derek putting this on YouTube and his copy that's like right. almost 20 years old. Probably this was uploaded three years ago, so his copy that's like something like 16 years old, being a little worn out. Back when our parents were in college, we weren't even born, and neither were CDs. I mean, it's flat out heavier. Mm-hmm. Like this version is flat out heavier. And it could be, like I said, something about the way that it was ripped from audio. Like if I upload, if I took a Relying K track and put it on YouTube, I could just increase the bass. I could just run it through sure, a, yeah. an audio editor and me- mess with it. And people would assume that's the way it is. So unless we hear it, we get our hands on actual copy. We don't exactly know. But the guitar is just a little grungier, a little heavier, and the Bird and the B-Sides version has that post-mm-hmm polish, that gold version polish, where they remove some of this human element. That's always what I come back to with the gold remixes, is they, like, remove... they, And also, I'm thinking that this is what I... This is what I think when I think of polished punk. It's removing the as much of the human element as possible. Removing as much of, like hearing the fingers sliding up the strings, hearing the bass strings sort of reverberate against the pickups, like removing the idea that this is an instrument held by a human. You know what I mean? Right. So that's what I hear when I hear now, having heard this YouTube video, what I think of when I hear the polish on Vinyl Countdown on Bird and the B-Sides. It's all the same with all the kids. No one knows what vinyl and that's got to be way different. No one. Yeah. Knows. Let's let's take that one more time, and then I'll play the 2008 mix. It's all the same with all the kids. No one knows what vinyl is. Cause they just burn the so here, and then here's how no one knows what vinyl is is on the 2008 version. Let's put this in a perspective in the present day in which we live. It's all the same with all the kids. No one knows what vinyl is. They put that the filter, the filter yeah. on no one knows what vinyl is in the original. Like they really polished it up. They really yeah. polished this. They made it less. And I'm guessing it in 2003, the statement they're making releasing a seven inch where the lead song is about, hey, kids, why aren't you listening to seven inches? Some people might think, oh, I should be into vinyl because vinyl is an old per- is an old format where you know right. you got the blue- moody blues and you got all this <laughs> jazz. But the thing is, in the punk sense, vinyl was always a huge important thing because it was the cheapest active place for the you know hardcore bands in Huntington Beach to release physical media back then. It was on seven inches, so they're 
grimy, grungy, like barely know how to play punk music was released on seven inches back then. So they kind of made the 2003 mix of this song sound a little grungier, sound a little bit more raw like they don't know exactly what they're doing yeah and i love the statement being made there with that filter of that like tinny like burned onto your blank cd sound right and then there's one other thing that i'm sure everyone has heard um a million times if they've listened to the bird and the b-sides where the slowed down pretty part you hear someone in the background right before it kicks back in for the outro go rock and roll (laughs) So let's listen to the 2008 mix of the last minute of the song, and then we'll compare it to the last minute of the 2003 mix. So you heard that, right? Mm-hmm. Right before they get into that final chorus, you hear rock and roll. With all the kids, no one knows vinyl is. And then that version of the chorus carries us to the end of the song. So now let's hear that same section on the 2003 version. No one knows what vinyl is. The stage is burning and we freeze onto their stacks of blank CDs. I believe any of the warble you're hearing right now would be from Derek's YouTube the, rip, the not player, the actual, yeah. not what's actually in the master. I prefer the drums in the 2003 version. Version they're so like prominent in the 2008 version, and they they're mixed like like higher. Gotcha. I didn't. I haven't taken note of that. It's all the same with all the kids. So I don't hear the rock and roll, at least on this YouTube rep. Let's go back one more. Thirty seconds. If it's in there, which I absolutely don't hear it, maybe I'll hear it in when we edit the episode, but I absolutely don't hear it right now. I don't hear the rock and roll. So that's probably an addition. Or the Aquabats completely remastered their uh, Fury of the Aquabats album. That's their big album. The one that has Travis Barker on the one, the last one with mm. Travis Barker on it. It's the one that's got all the big songs, Magic Chicken and Super Rad and stuff. They completely remastered it in, I think, 2019 or 18. And there's so much stuff, so many talking about fidelity and how mixes completely changed things. They, As far as I know, they didn't re-record any elements, didn't dub anything in. But there's so many little things that you can't hear in the mix in the originals that you hear in the mix when they fixed it up and changed it. It's mm-hmm. almost like, you know, when you mix, mixing, a, I would have to imagine that mixing music is almost like an endless possibility in a lot of ways. Like sometimes you think like, oh, this obvious, sometimes it might be obvious depending on the type of song you're doing, but almost like writing a novel with no preset idea or no pre-written out story. <laughs> it's literally an endless possibility of like what comes up, what comes, you know, what, where do I go? What do I do in the story? Or 
which what do I put higher? What do I put lower? What do I put high in the mix? If there's a weird little funny mistake of someone talking, do I leave that in there? Do I not leave it in there? So this Aquabats album has all those kind of bells and whistles that you missed in the original, and it just reminds me of this. This reminds me of that. No one knows what vinyl is. Oh, and there's, did you hear that? Leading up to this last repeat of the chorus at the end of the 2003 mix, there was like an echo. I don't even yeah. know if it counts as a reverb, but it was an echo on the last like sustain of what he was singing. Here, I'll play it again. No one knows what vinyl is. So let's put this in perspective in the present day in which we live. It's all the same with all the kids. No one knows what vinyl is. So there's that. Now I'm wondering... If the mix of Five Iron Friends. Well, the rip sounds blown out, but I don't think they too greatly changed the mix of Five Iron Frenzy. I didn't even say what I was doing, but now we've already done Five Iron Frenzy is Dead or Dying, and I'm like, did they change the mix of those? Right. <laughs> Sounds about the same. Sounds about the same. This sounds wetter. Yeah. But I don't know. Again, I can't tell if that wetness is is the vinyl rip or not. Exactly. Yeah. But the changes in the, even with not knowing what's Derek's fault or not, (laughs) there's so many clear changes in Vinyl Countdown. Well, not him, but maybe his record player. I don't mean fault. (laughs) I meant what's Derek's, what's, what change, what, what Sonic things in this YouTube video are Derek's doing, you know, on purpose or not. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, and I don't have, a, I didn't have a ton of notes on the song specifically other than talking about the history of vinyl and burning CDs and MP3s. You remember, did you see that viral tweet where a Gen Zer said, honestly, what's burning a CD? Oh no. <laughs> Someone said that and it just, and it, and it got ratioed. We didn't have Bluetooth. <laughs> Right. <laughs> they didn't know what burning a CD was. And if you don't know, if someone doesn't know, it's it's making a CD. It's putting your MP3s into a program. It's like a mixtape. It's a mixtape. It's a playlist that it's, you put on a CD. Yeah. I don't think there's a better word than burning a CD because I guess the... I, I don't know where the entomology for that comes from, but it's like you got a CD. It's blank. You're burning songs into it. Like a with like a blowtorch, or like your the laser. There's a laser that puts the songs into it, so those the laser is burning the songs into it. I guess that might be the etymology for that. Who knows? Who knows what these what these what these Silicon Valley eggheads are thinking when they come up with some of this stuff, and the way they control our media nowadays and the information that gets to us. I just love this song. It's rocking. It comes on. You start hopping up and down and dancing to it. It's mm-hmm. good stuff. So in my deep dive, we have new release today, uh, The their post for the original pressing. Release date, August 1st, 2003. And I just realized I on our break, I put my Invisalign back in right before I had to do all the talking. <laughs> well, real quick, we didn't talk about Europe and the song Vinyl oh, Countdown. Right. Final Countdown. It's a pun on the song Final Countdown. We all know it. It goes like this. <laughs> 
This is the band Europe, the Swedish rock band from Sweden, and their famous song, Final Countdown. I'm just shaking my head at him. And right now, Europe is either dead or dying. This is Five Iron Frenzy. Just... <laughs> I'm waiting until you say something. <laughs> the Final Countdown is the fourth EP by Christian rock band Reliant K. It's basically just the Wikipedia page. Right. This is the Final Countdown by Europe. Classic, cheesy keyboard. The band is known for both opening and closing their shows with this song. To prepare for this episode, I tried listening to some... I'm like, what are the other Europe songs? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I was like even listening to them and I'm like, okay, this is a pretty big song, Carrie. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I tried to deep dive on them and I was like, uh, you know. And Rock of the Night is their third biggest song on Spotify. We're still going to get flagged for this. We're already getting <laughs> yeah. flagged for a lot of stuff. <laughs> Fiber and Frenzy is going to take this episode down. <laughs> and Open Your Heart is their fifth biggest song. And another version of Final Countdown is their fourth biggest song on Spotify. So. They're no Survivor. That's for sure. Yeah. You can dive so deep into Survivor. So good. <laughs> um, I have another post. It's on. It's a Facebook post from the official Reliant K Facebook uh, from when from the repress it says Relan K going back to our punk rock roots we decided to make some limited edition seven inch releases we have several of this type of series planned over the next year at the end there will be a limited edition box available to store all your seven inch copies in this is series one each seven inch is limited to a thousand units the creepy seven inch side a softer to me acoustic side b jefferson airplane original version the Vinyl Countdown 1, Side A, The Vinyl Countdown, Side B, Five Iron Frenzy is Either Dead or Dying. The Vinyl Countdown 2, Side A, Nothing Without You, Side B, Five Iron Frenzy is Either Dead or Dying, Ska Version. And then it has a link to superfanvinyl.com. Right. Yeah, some of the... Seven- and only two people like that post, which... I, what? <laughs> I'm confused now. <laughs> Some of the seven inch series are easy to get and some of them are getting up there. It just depends. I guess it depends on what songs people want on seven inch and which ones people don't care. Then we have the Vinyl Countdown LLC. It's just another company with the with the same name. Find uh, roofing tenders in Newfoundland. Thin carpet for purchase in Oklahoma City roofing store in manchester i don't i don't really know what they do here but so to the best of our knowledge we are doing our best to fight technology because back when ou the company's filing status is listed there's so many typos here listed as active and its filing number is 42591150k contact us about the company profile for the vinyl countdown llc and then they are also selling uh a, a bunch of random stuff like i don't know what this website is it has a weird website name it's champion lockheart k2ja.web.app yeah you got a virus on your phone now probably <laughs> 
the sacrifices I make for the podcast. <laughs> and then it's like, there's a picture of different colors you can choose and like a wardrobe and like a printer. It's very strange. Like, I don't, I don't know what this website is. Yeah. Also, the phrase Vinyl Countdown is obviously, I think it's a, an easily um, parallel thinking pun. I'm sure Reliant yeah. Cake wasn't the first to come up with it and they haven't been the last, certainly. Then we've got a Reddit post. This was posted by Awesome Awesomest Cody four years ago um, under r slash Reliant K. Reliant K seven inch issues and some ideas for SMLXL. I have nearly had a problem with every set. Most are nitpicks, but some are just strange and don't make sense. I have some ideas on how they can fix these issues. I feel it is such a cool idea, but the execution is a little puzzling. First of all, one of the biggest draws to the vinyl is the artwork. Seven inches are a little smaller, but they still deserve decent artwork. And the seven inch series is seriously lacking with artwork. I understand it's cheaper this way. My only hope is they include a booklet or slips with the artwork and liner notes. I don't just I don't know if it's cheaper. I don't know if that's why they did it. I thought it was a stylistic I choice. I think it's just a stylistic choice. I, and I kind of like it. It's like a back to basics, like kind of roots thing that yeah, I, I enjoy. I don't I don't think, I'm sure those cardboard sleeves weren't cheap, to be honest. Like, and they're very, uh, they're very specific to that thing. I don't see that specific yeah. kind of cardboard sleeve. So I doubt very much that like, if you just went ahead and got like a paper printed thing, especially nowadays, like there are companies that just print cards and t-shirts and mugs for the cheapest possible thing i don't think printing stuff although this is when this is like eight years ago or something still it doesn't yeah i don't think i don't think the cardboard and the sticker yeah the reddit post was from four years ago actually actually the way they do it with that cardboard sleeve that is very specific to their releases with that sticker with the very minimal artwork on it I would imagine that has to be very expensive because you're buying two separate materials and then you need some sort of machine or you need people putting those stickers on there very securely and and correctly. So I can't imagine that that is cheaper than just printing out some paper and putting it in a plastic sleeve like a typical seven inches. I'm sorry. I'm just scrolling down because I'm like, OMG, this is such a long post. And I love that the first comment from four years ago... City Electric Records just responded, whoa, (laughs) followed by Silent Ransom replied, best response. (laughs) But but without going further in, because it's just it's a lot of just nitpicky stuff. um, Roby990 four years ago replied regarding the seven seven inch artwork issue. They have it as minimalistic artwork to represent each of these different parts of the album and EPs. These specific sections are taken from. With the release of Series 1, SMLXL stated that when this RK7 inch is done, they'll release a box set to store all of the 7 inches in. SMLXL confirmed that this box will release sometime this year. This was done to save costs, but also to make the box look super cool, too. A couple years back, Green Day released a a couple similar box sets, a 7-inch box set and a studio album box set, 1990 to 2009. Even though the individual artworks were recreations of the originals, the box itself had some really awesome art on it. I feel that the box holding 
our Reliant K 7 inches will look just as cool. In regards to splitting songs on different discs, I'll agree with you there. I personally don't understand why SMLXL split the vinyl countdown onto two discs when all four tracks were originally on one. When collecting albums from them, I've noticed they add a bunch of spacing from the center hole to where the grooves of each song are. On the original, mm -hmm, the grooves are a lot closer to the center of the record than on the 10-year replica. Figuring out what I know about Reliant K from our interview in a little bit with Brad Moist and other things we've heard, uh, I'm sure the ownness of that decision is probably on Reliant K. Like I, I would assume that that is what Hoops and Tyson wanted specifically, especially since Hoops is Hoops is a huge fidelity guy. Right. That's why he has his pedal company, I'm sure. And he is and and like Hoops was like the project manager basically or whatever. He was the one who made the decision on the air for free total reworking of the vinyl. So I would have to imagine that the fact that there were only two songs on each of the ongoing seven inch series is Reliant K's decision and not SMLXL. And if you don't like it. I mean, don't blame it on someone outside of the band. I have to imagine that that is exactly how they envisioned it for whatever reason, whether it's just like, it's just cool. It's limited. It's like two song, one, two songs on each right. thing. It's wow. And then this person continues to just go on and on and on about really like intricate, detailed <laughs> stuff about like art, like specific point oh one whatever <laughs> RPMs and such. So... <laughs> I I really only like was like, oh, this is kind of interesting and there's not a lot out there. So I pulled this up and I, I was going to say I thought their issue was going to be the one thing that I that I do have an issue with on RK Vinyl is just really with the all work and no playlist album where if when if we're going to put it on, we put on our test pressings. Right. Because both copies of our vinyl that we got are because like, we wanted warped. we really wanted we really wanted two t-shirts right. so i ordered two <laughs> copies just so i could get two t-shirts and they both came a little warped and it was kind of distressing but we we're like well we also did the test pressing order so and i think it all really comes down to the fact that black vinyl is king black is. vinyl is king colored vinyl splatter vinyl it's cool and all but it sounds worse than black vinyl when it comes to me buying a record if there is a black vinyl copy of it i always go with that it's colored vinyl is really just from like a collecting and a, an aesthetic reason if you actually buy records to listen to you should always go for the black vinyl yeah so i actually i have a post from yoursoundmatters.com does colored vinyl sound worse than black vinyl and this is from may 25th 2020 colored vinyl gets a bad rap among vinyl and hi-fi circles for years colored pressings were infamous for lousy quality they are subsequently cast aside to this day by many as little more than a marketing gimmick but is this really fair can the color of a vinyl record really make that much difference on face value a debate around how color might affect the sound quality of one pressing over another appears inconsequential almost smoke and mirrors as with most things though when you dig a little deeper you begin to see the wood from the trees a little method in the madness to help decipher truth from fiction we spoke to matt early of got a groove records a 
pressing plant based in Cleveland, Ohio. Matt was able to provide a fantastic insight into the trials and tribulations of working with different colors and the vinyl manufacturing process. When I first began investing in vinyl color and the impact on production quality, it became apparent pretty quickly that I was approaching a continuous topic. Most of the information available online is shrouded in pseudoscience is shrouded in pseudoscience. And of those I spoke to directly, many of their answers were inconclusive or ambiguous. At the same time, I think it's important to stress that while Matt was extremely helpful and forthcoming with his knowledge, he can only speak for his own unique experience at Gotta Groove Records, speak to a different plant, and their experience may or may not vary entirely. I'm skipping forward a little bit to where they get to the answer. Okay. (laughs) Uh, All vinyl records are made of PVC, which naturally has no color. It appears white, but can show light through if held up to a light source. To change the appearance of natural PVC, colorants are added to the mix. In the case of traditional black records, black carbon is often added, which also strengthens the PVC mix. As a general rule of thumb, traditional black vinyl and natural uncolored vinyl produce the best results overall. Matt explains further, certainly with our black vinyl, carbon is used as a colorant. As far as I understand, this can reduce static electricity, but the biggest contributor to black vinyl performance is more down to the fact that it's the most prevalent color. It's the most often run, and therefore it's the most consistent. When we switch from black to colored vinyl on any of our tests, on any of our pressings, there's a lot of finesse involved in changing over as the all materials run dramatically different. Whereas with black vinyl, you can run that on any press on any day and while every record runs a little differently you know the vinyl itself is going to be pretty consistent for me this is the biggest overriding factor in why black is said to sound better okay so that makes sense so maybe my prejudice against colored vinyl isn't scientifically based just in the i i always was always my understanding that the material used for the color actually like sounded worse when the needle hits it if that's not scientifically based in fact i'm willing to redo my thinking but so now what i'm understanding and this also makes sense and i think i heard this as well is if you're going to do a colored vinyl the presser has to know what they're doing yeah you know what i mean they have to know what material they're putting in and they probably have to calibrate the machine to properly account for that and i'm guessing maybe that has something to do with why our white vinyl copies of all work and no playlist arrived to us warped and i don't think that that necessarily i don't know what uh, smlxl's printing plant is but you know vinyl companies have to also rely on printing companies yeah <laughs> like smlxl doesn't print their i think i don't think they can from everything i understand about the industry they can't print their own vinyl so who know who knows what they used and what material that white vinyl was made out of and they probably didn't calibrate something in the machine correctly and it came out warped and I don't know. Uh, It says, I'm scrolling down a little bit, and uh, it says, in in the manufacturing process, of course, there are always exceptions. Every record runs differently, and there are no doubt variables from one pressing to the next, let alone one pressing plant to the next. We've certainly found exceptions to the black is best rule. There are some records we have run that seem to run much better on transparent color for whatever reason. Just the way the grooves 
form seems to work better in some instances. For example, sometimes when you have a record that has a lot of molding issues, like non-fill on black vinyl, much of those molding issues can go away due to the softer nature of colored vinyl. As my conversation with Matt unfolds, what becomes clear is that color itself does not directly affect the sound quality of a record. Instead, the difference in performance lies more in how each material molds. The reason different colors have varying sound characteristics on vinyl is because of how they mold, Matt continues. A contributor and how they mold is what's used as the colorant. So for example, when we run a a white record, in our experience, we find this to be one of the noisiest colors. When white vinyl is mixed with other colors, this only serves to exacerbate the issue further. I don't want to say they're generally terribly fallible records all the time, but if you were to compare one with, say, the exact same record on black, you'd likely hear a difference. So with black vinyl, we know the colorant is always going to be carbon, but with other colors, the colorant may vary from one to the next, and this introduces a variable. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I don't really, we, I, I don't even know if we own any picture discs, but I think picture discs from what I understand are like, <laughs> just like, they sound the worst. Like even people who debate colored vinyl, I think everyone hates the sound of picture discs. Yeah. I think we own like one and it was like a record store day release. I, I believe. Right. I can't think of who it is though. Gotcha. Well, then we are entering the vinyl countdown towards our interview (laughs) but i do have there aren't there aren't really a lot of things on youtube nothing on soundcloud but i do have two things to play and the only other version of the song that i found is tson playing this song acoustic seven years ago um this is uploaded by kara grindstaff on may 5th 2013 they wrote underneath we only got part recorded but the crowd started oh that's right and it's freebird he does freebird acoustic and then he does vinyl countdown oh how nice so it says we only got part of freebird reco- uh, recorded because the crowd started screaming freebird so matt started singing it his own special version which we'll also hear uh we also got part of the vinyl countdown before the phone died their very first time performing that song cat's cradle Carborough, North Carolina, May tw- uh, May 2nd, 2013. Here's Tyson playing Vinyl Countdown on acoustic guitar.
And it just ends there because their battery died. Nice. We'll hear a little bit of the Freebird thing. But one thing I forgot to mention as well in the lyrics is he says, nowadays the records are all worthless. And yeah, throughout the 90s into the 2000s, part of the reason why the records had such a boom now is because in order for something to become really valuable and collectible, I can't remember the name of this principle, but there's a principle in which for something to become a collectible, it has to become worthless first, Hmm. which is why people who try to speculate on like, say, a comic book, like they go out and they buy issue 100 of The Walking Dead because they're like, this is going to get my kids through college someday (laughs) or Beanie Babies was probably the biggest example. The thing was they printed those things in the millions knowing that people would want it. They built a hype around it. So it will take forever to become worthless because there's so many copies out there because something basically has to become worthless before it can truly become collectible. Um, And that's why it's like a complete crapshoot when you have like a random CD or, or record in your collection that you bought at the time and suddenly it's worth like $500. <laughs> like I have a copy of Life in General from MXPX that I bought from Tooth and Nail's own store for like $5. That's another early vinyl that I owned. I was like, oh, cool. Life in General. And I was more thinking like I probably wouldn't listen to it on my grandmother's record player. But I was more thinking like, oh, I'd love to have a large piece of the, a large copy of the Life in General cover (laughs) for five bucks. Why not? And now that record's worth hundreds of dollars. And I didn't buy it thinking it would ever be worth anything. Uh, So let's hear a little bit of Matt playing Freebird. So I guess that's it. He didn't really even play it. He just went free bird like David Lynch. Petition for Reliant K when they come back to, to play. To actually play free bird. No, to play this version of free bird instead of deathbed. <laughs> I think that's. And now it's just ch- it's just three minutes of chatter with the crowd. So he doesn't actually even play Freebird. He does it as a joke. It's great, I love it. That's great. Should be should be every show. <laughs> so there's two music videos, um, f- two fan music videos. There's also a, a really rare '90s like EDM sort of music band, like I don't know, called Vinyl Countdown, and this is what they sound like. I'm taking a little side. I was going to ask if it was Rednecks. <laughs> it's not Rednecks. <laughs> I've been obsessed with that song recently. He has. Can so confirm. This. this is like Prodigy. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> the band Prodigy. Yes. So whatever genre of electronic music Prodigy is, that's what the vinyl countdown the band sounded like. There you go. That's, there's that. Um, apparently they're really rare and hard to like suss out exactly what, who they were and just someone uploaded their records to YouTube. Uh, here's the, so there's two FMVs and I guess since there's so few, I can actually give them full credit. This one's rather simple. It's uploaded by Katie Falls, Katie with an IE. It's only got 55 views after nine years. And it's just, it's got this weird frame around it in the editing software, but it's just them in their bedrooms with their hoodies up because I guess of the hip hop thing at the beginning, they come walking into the, st- into the shot 
like nice. acting all hip hop or whatever, but then they start rocking out. And there's not much to it. There's not real any editing. It's just them in their creepy bedroom <laughs> dancing around to the song. But this is Leah B. L E A B E E. And we've seen her before. And she does these like high effort by herself edited like also in a bedroom but edited in high effort like comedic things where she's really like acting it up for the camera and like seemed I, we talked about her when she did some other song because we were like pressing on we we're like pressing on and we we're like this seems like she wants to be on snl one day because <laughs> <laughs> this is leah b studios four years ago 228 views so here she is i don't know how to describe it except it's like highly edited Constantly yeah. cutting to different shots, and she she made it by herself. And she's just putting so much. There's so much effort here. Yeah. It's great to put like a and it's it's well shot because it's only four years ago. She has iPhones. She's holding up iPhones, and it's funny how did we even talk about it? How we talked about it a little bit? How it completely changed. The scene completely changed. Like not only are vinyls, not only is vinyl actually more popular today than it was in 2003, but mp3s and cds have completely gone by the wayside like people don't even download mp3s anymore people stream yeah i love that she went to open her window and throw the the vinyl but she didn't cut fast (laughs) enough so you see her hesitate and then like then cut like she wasn't actually gonna throw it she leah b is very super creative even her even her bedroom is creative like she puts a lot of effort into this stuff yeah yeah so and that's all I really have. There's not a ton for this song on YouTube. But we do have our interview with Brad Moist. As I mentioned, he works for Goatee Records. He does a lot of their social media. I didn't know this until the interview, but Goatee Records is really like only four people. <laughs> wow. So, so he, he wears a lot of hats at the company, but he's been with them for decades. He had some time off here and there. He's going to talk about that. And he created Mono vs. Stereo Records before Matt and Matt took it over after Bird and the B-Sides, you know, Brad started it. And Jessica, what do you think of this song? Do you like it better, the same, or less than before? I think I like it even better. I think I like it even better now. And I'm actually going to go back and listen to that 2003 mix. Yeah, same, because I really, I really enjoyed the mix of that one. Yeah. And unlike, say, unlike, say, the second and third album gold versions, where Mm -hmm. there's, there's, 2000 you know there's non-gold mixes that i absolutely prefer over the gold mixes and gold mixes i absolutely prefer over the non-gold i like both versions of vinyl countdown equally for different reasons so on to the interview so let's put this in perspective in the present day in which we live it's all the same with all the kids no one knows what vinyl is uh so we're joined by brad moist who works for goatee records uh, last year, right as the pandemic was starting up, you had uh, hit us up on our comments and, and you know, you said if we ever wanted to have you on the podcast to let you know. And then I, we both kind of like forgot because of the pandemic really got going. And then I reached out, you know, I reached out again this month and I was like, oh, the year went by real fast. And uh, luckily, you know, you were still interested in doing the podcast and we're really glad to have you on. Um, you let me know that, you know, obviously you work for Goatee Records, and then you let us know that you founded Mono versus Stereo. So that's when we got really interested because uh, we basically have no 
real understanding about the history of mono versus stereo. So I'm excited to learn about that. First, I let um, everyone know sort of your background and what is exactly you do with uh, Goatee Records and how you came to work for them. Well, I've been at Goatee Records for over 20 years. The label's been around for almost 27 now. Okay. Uh, right out of college, I went to Penn State. And then just kind of worked my way up. They offered me a part-time job. And then it was a full-time job at the label doing marketing and festival promotions. And that's how I got to know the Reliant K guys. Uh, and then after two years of doing that, I really just had a vision for something else. I saw what was happening with the Reliant K guys. And I just thought, man, we need to have like more rock bands that we need to work with. But we need to do it differently than what Goatee was doing. So I pitched Toby and Joey, who are the owners of Goatee, the idea of Mono versus Stereo. Um, and they really liked it because it was different budgets financially than what Goatee was doing. It was going to be cheaper and then just more indie rock, punk rock records and different styles than what Goatee was doing. Um, and the Reliant K guys were extremely supportive from the very beginning, always wearing the stickers and their shirts and, wearing the, and putting the stickers on their amps and things. And we just had a really good friendship early on. And so the first release from Mono vs. Stereo came out in June of 2003. And Matt contributed a, a solo song from Matt Teeson and the Earthquakes, which is the first song that he ever put out, Poison Ivy. And um, that was just kind of the start of their involvement with the record label. So, um, and then during that time, we started talking about the second release for the record label. And this is before the vinyl boom was happening, you know, and mm -hmm. I was always a fan of what Tooth and L did back in the day of just seven inches of B-sides and things like that. And so I thought, why don't we do a seven inch? And the guys were making the two lefts record and I knew there was a bunch of songs that didn't make the record. And so the initial conversations were to put on some of the B sides from two lefts onto a seven inch and make it exclusive on the Mono versus stereo website and at the band shows. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I was always curious about the, uh, so in, in, in researching before talking to you today, I actually found out some of the answers, but I was always confused on some of the timeline of how Mono versus stereo began and uh, interested in how the uh, vinyl countdown seven inch kind of came to be. Cause it was so cool. It was like before the, they were making such like Reliant K made such a statement specifically with that release. It felt like, like here's a seven inch and, you know, like maybe some underground punk bands and bands like that would still have seven inches in vinyl, but yeah, vinyl wasn't like in a boom at the time. So they, and definitely the kind of audience that Reliant K would have had at that time, wouldn't be would they were kind of speaking directly to them with some of those lyrics right like talking about you know burning mp3s and only having cds so they're like making such a specific statement to their fans at the time it felt like by releasing a seven inch and having it be about vinyls so um i'm actually interested to realize if this is what you're saying that vinyl countdown was maybe written as a song for the album but then it got held back for this specific seven inch is that the case so to go back a little bit, so what Reliant, so in typical record industry stuff, mm -hmm. most artists release a record and there's 10 songs on a record and a record label pays out on usually just 10 songs. Okay. On every record that Reliant K did, they always, what we would call over deliver. They always put more songs on a record than they needed to. And in between each record and before each record, they always put out an EP every year for a long time. They always had a piece of content out in the marketplace. And so they'd already done three EPs Mm -hmm. with three records and so the next thought was let's do a vinyl one um and the initial idea was just to take b-sides songs they didn't finish for two lefts uh we're nothing without you 
was one of them and a couple other songs and let's just make a seven inch around that. Well, as conversations started happening with me and Tyson, just classic Tyson, man, he's just like, well, I can go write this song and I can go write this song. And during that time, the announcement came out that Fiber and Frenzy was calling it quits. So he's like, I'm gonna go write a song about Fiber and Frenzy calling it quits. And, um, and then we decided to uh, work with the band's fan club at the time, the RK fan club, and write a song for a fan. Jesse Alkire was the fan that was that we kind of put on the cover of the of the album art, mm-hmm. um, and that came up with the theme for the vinyl countdown. And of course, classic Tyson, it was a play on words with the final countdown by right. Europe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so all that kind of wrapped up. It kind of morphed from B sides into well, let's include this Firebrand Frenzy song. It was only supposed to be like 30 seconds and just one song. But then Matt delivered two versions <laughs> because that's what Matt does. He always over delivers. Right. Uh, and then this came this whole idea with the fan club. So it kind of started out in one way of just B-sides and then morphed into this whole piece, um, which was really cool. I mean, again, the band over delivered, mm-hmm. um, but it was a way to constantly for every year for them to be delivering music to their fan base. You know what I mean? Um, which I always thought was a great way to grow their fan base early on. Yeah. So, that's cool. Yeah, that's great to know uh, some of the actual background of that song. I remember uh, I've been listening to uh, Reliant K since the first album. Like I walked in a store and I saw, you know, the the self-titled cover and I'm like, this looks like my kind of music, just seeing that cover. So uh, I was seeing them mm-hmm. like every year in those, you know, in that in the quartet era. And uh, yeah, that whole it was cool how Reliant K made that 2003 like partially a celebration of five iron frenzy and to put it on this ep mm-hmm. and to play that song at all the shows and then to uh play their five iron, you know to play five iron frenzy's final show when they weren't on that entire five iron frenzy tour it seemed like such a like a yep. like a camaraderie and they were like you know really celebrating that thing along with this other cool idea of having you know pushing vinyl on a specific section of kids that probably weren't really interested in it but then when vinyl countdown came out i was like ah maybe i should order that and i've I've kicked myself ever since that i didn't order an original you know get an original copy of vinyl countdown i've always regretted that i didn't um (laughs) (laughs) it was like such a missed opportunity well we didn't you know i didn't know you know because look i was a fan i think i mentioned you know tooth and nail had done seven inches early on small town minds by mxpx right they'd done you know Starflare 59 had a seven inch for the song next time around, which was never on one of their records. And I love that as a fan. And so did the, the Reliant K guys. And so that's what this piece was supposed to be, was to kind of honor that. But at the time, I didn't know how many we would sell. So we only made 1,500 and we sold out. And I was just like, oh my gosh. But then it just became a thing like, well, I think we just keep it to that pressing. You know, we didn't right. repress it. Um, the other thing, too, that was kind of frustrating was when we did it, you know, now we know about terminology called mastering for vinyl and different things. And uh-huh. back then when we did it, when we mastered it, we didn't master for vinyl because I didn't really know what I was doing early on. Okay. And it didn't turn out sounding that great. The vinyl really didn't sound that good. Um, and so we just kind of let it just be that thing for the 1500. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, five years later when the band was working on the bird and the B sides, you know, we went back in and remixed all those songs, you know, it was a lot of fun, man. You know, the, the Reliant K guys were so supportive of Mono versus Stereo early on because at the time they were the only rock band on Goatee. And that was the kind of music that I was really into. And so for me working at Goatee, it was really about Reliant K and John Rubin and Grits, mm-hmm. you know, and I loved all the other artists, but 
those were like my passion artists. And, um, and so when I was given the opportunity to start Mono versus Stereo through Goatee, the Reliant K guys were just extremely supportive, you know, like stickers on the amp cases and always wearing the t-shirts. I mean, they took out the Evan Anthem, which is the first band we put out on Mono versus Stereo. They took out that band on the Everybody Wants to Rule the World tour with Amber Lynn mm-hmm. um, that fall of 2003. And they were just always supportive um, of Mono versus Stereo in those early years while I was running it. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. And I mean, Matt Thiessen co-produced the, uh, this band last Tuesday. It was a punk band I signed a label. He co-produced their debut record on Mono versus Stereo. Um, like I said, they contributed a song to the first Mono versus Stereo compilation as Matt Thiessen and the Earthquake. And there's, there's, there was a lot of camaraderie and friendship because we're all friends. We're all still friends to this day. So um, it was just a lot of fun. And the Vinyl Countdown was just a fun uh, piece to be a part of. And looking back, like I said, you know, it was way ahead of the vinyl boom. I mean, the vinyl boom probably didn't really hit till about 2010 when you could see it starting to pick up, you know, right. and we were way, we were way ahead of that. So the, this is a little kind of nugget too, is that so then in 2004, when they released, mm-hmm, I thought, okay, in 2005, we're going to do a vinyl version of, mm-hmm, and we're going to put the B side, apathetic way to be on that. So we pressed up mm-hmm, on vinyl for the first time in 2005. And I thought, okay, we manufactured 1,500 copies of the Vinyl Countdown. We sold out like in a month and a half. Surely we could sell 3,000 copies in 2005 of mm-hmm on vinyl. Well, it didn't move. That stuff just sat in the Goatee Warehouse for years. Wow. And it just didn't sell. People weren't into it in 2005, six, seven, you know? Mm-hmm. And we ended up having to sell a lot of it to like a retailer just to get it out of the warehouse. Um, and then 2010, when we started doing vinyl more with House of Heroes and Reliant K releases, I think we did the the first re-release of mm-hmm on vinyl in like maybe 13 or 14 and just sold like a bunch of them. You know, right. it was just crazy to think like the first time we pressed on a vinyl, we couldn't sell 3,000 yeah. units. But then later we were just, we we probably sold five different color variations of that thing now, you know, yeah. um, because the vinyl boom is just totally different, you know? Yeah. It's funny how the song itself, for being such a statement at the time, that was something so, you know, cool for Reliant K to be doing, like making this statement about vinyl, like, and, and yeah. how, how come people don't know vinyl anymore? And why are you all obsessed yeah. with MP3s and how it's completely flipped and how like younger Reliant K fans today probably hear that song and they're like, what? Because they're like, <laughs> Because yeah. uh, there was a there was a tweet that went viral recently, like in the last week or two, that somebody like a Gen Zer was like, they tweeted, honestly, I'm asking, what is burning a CD? And then like people lost, you know, <laughs> millennials and older <laughs> lost their minds. And uh, yeah. some, somebody on Twitter like t- quoted uh, Vinyl Countdown, and we retweeted that. But it's just so funny how it completely flipped. Um, and uh, you just yeah. answered a, a, a mystery we had on this podcast back when we did the apathetic way to be song, because I had, I totally missed when the, when, when it turns out it was you, when you put together the first mm-hmm vinyl, because then when I went on mm-hmm. Discogs, when I was trying to figure out, you know, why is apathetic way to be in the middle? Why is it on the playlist of the reissue vinyls and why is it on mm-hmm 10 where it is instead of being at the end right. where all the other B-sides are? And then I found yep. on Discogs the listing for the original 2005 vinyl and I'm like, oh, it was here on the 2005 vinyl yep. and I could never wrap my head. I, I mean, I wrap my head around it, but I was like, I'm never entirely sure why. 
Um, so I'm, I'm glad you kind of like answered that question without me even thinking to ask you about it. Well, that was intentional from T-Center Hoops and Townsend to put that song in that part of the sequence, which I thought was really cool to do, to not just put it at the end of the record. Because, you know, on that record, I know we're going off topic, but at that record, right. it closes with a completely different song. And so to throw apathetic at the end of that, you just wouldn't want that after When I Go Down. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, um, so it made sense to put it within the record where it was originally supposed to be, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, man, we, I don't know, we just had a lot of fun back in those days with Reliant K. And, you know, like I said, it was weird to go from, let's just put a bunch of B-sides and then it was just classic teasing. I know I've said it before, <laughs> I'm going to go write some other songs. I'm going to write a song to honor Five Brand Frenzy. And at the time, he was just like, hey, I got two versions. I don't know which one we should put on. I was like, let's just put both. And he didn't have a title for the second one. So I was like, why don't we just call it wannabe ska version? And mm -hmm. so we went with that. Um, and then, you know, we had We're Nothing Without You as well. Um, and yeah, we just, it, it was just a lot of fun, you know? Um, and you're right. The way they honored the band, Five Brand Frenzy, was really cool. Not a lot of our others do that. Mm -hmm. That summer, they played the song live. Um, and it was just great, man. I, I don't know. There's a lot of fond memories of those days with those guys and a lot of stuff that we worked on together and it was just all around just having fun and putting out as much music as possible and growing a fan base and having fun with it you know so um yeah yeah so uh to to go back to the way in which you founded mono versus stereo um because I, I i recently finally figured out the timeline i heard this i heard this other podcast that you were interviewed on back in 2013 and i finally got the story but i was always a little confused on the timeline because like the most you see about news and articles of the existence of mono versus stereo online they all talk about when uh the band when reliant k took the label over at the right. end of their capital time like when they were done with that they took over mono versus stereo so i was always a little confused because some of the, like the online zeitgeist makes it sound like mono versus stereo really got going when reliant k then had it but uh, there's this time where maybe like people writing you know people recording the history or whatever on wh in whatever ways kind of miss that it says right on the wikipedia page you founded it and it started in 2003 so uh what was the 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 trajectory of where you started mono versus stereo and then it eventually uh, gets into the hands specifically of it was it Tyson and Hoops who specifically ran it or was it the whole band? So the, the way that went down so you know I'd been a goatee for I started in 2000 summer of 2002 I'd been there two years and you know I think I mentioned earlier I was I loved all the artists I was working with at goatee but I really loved Reliant K, John Rubin, Grits and at the time Reliant K was the only rock band on the label and I we'd actually come across at goatee like three other bands uh, a band called Bleach, a band called Spoken, a band oh, wow. called Holland. Wow. Um, and we, yeah, all ended up being on Tooth and Nail. And me yeah. and another guy, Goatee, really wanted to sign them. And Goatee was just like, ah, we just don't feel like it's time. <sighs> and so I felt like we kept missing on some rock bands that we could put out on tour with Reliant K as they were, you know, succeeding. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I came up with this idea from Monoverse Stereo and pitched it to the Goatee owners, Toby and Joey. And you know, I had to pitch budgets and all that kind of stuff, how it would be different than Goatee. Um, you know, and so the initial pitch was, look, let's, we're going to make records cheaper than Goatee. We're going to sign up. We're going to sign rock bands of all different styles and have them all tour together just a lot like Tooth and Nail does. Reliant K was going to help out by taking some of those bands on tour. Mm -hmm. And that was really the start of Mono vs. Stereo. And the first release was going to be a compilation with some bands on the label, plus other bands in the scene at the time. Again, Matt Tyson wanted to contribute a song to it, which is great. 
the first band on the label, the Evan Anthem was on there, um, you know, which at that time, Mark Townsend only produced Reliant K Records. He produced that first record from the Evan Anthem. Um, and then the band committed to taking the Evan Anthem out on their fall tour in the fall of 2003. Everybody wants to rule the world tour with Anne Berlin and Don't Look Down. And so there was just a lot of camaraderie going along in the scene. And then especially with me and Reliant K and the Monarch Stereo Band. And so the next artist we signed was a guy named Andy Ziff. Then um, I signed a band called Chasing Victory. I signed a band called The Showdown, uh, a punk band called Last Tuesday, which Matt Thiessen co-produced their first record with a buddy of ours named Joe Marlette, who had done like Denver Harbor and Phoenix TX records. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for about seven years, I was running Monoverse Stereo. I mean, Maylene and the Sons of Disaster was a band, House of Heroes. Um, I mean, the showdown were out on OzFest in 2007, opened up for Lamb of God and Ozzy Osbourne. Um, Maylene and the Sons of Disaster went from opening up for POD and then being on Warp Tour, you know? Um, and so, but I was going through some personal stuff at the end of 2007. And so I left Monoverse Stereo and left Goatee. Mm-hmm. Took about a year off. At that time, Reliant K had just put out the five score record on Capital and uh, Capital was done with the band. And so the band's contract reverted back to Goatee. And so Goatee had one more record with the band and that was because it started out to be the Nashville Tennis CP, which is really just a full record. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's to me yeah. it's still one of the greatest records in Reliant K's catalog of like, that's not an EP, that's a full length record. Oh yeah, we talk um, about that all the time. Season, again, like we talked about over-delivering, just wanted to over-deliver and create mm-hmm. a whole second side to that record that was all the B-sides. And so that was really their last record with Gochi Records. And so Mono versus Stereo Phase 2 was the band re-signing to Gochi Records after they completed their contract with the Bird and the B-side. And in that, they had, the, they had the ability to put their records then on Mono versus Stereo and then sign bands to Mono versus Stereo since I had left. Gotcha. Um, the funny thing is I was only gone for a year. I came back <laughs> and then I'm doing marketing <laughs> for those releases on Mono versus Stereo, the band's albums. Forget Not Slow Down and Case for Karaoke and Collapsible Long and Air for Free and um, the Dave Savelle records and Dennis and Whitmer. Um, all those were records that I was still a part of just on a different level. So that's kind of the, the quick story of Mono versus Stereo. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. Like I said, it, it seems like it's just not like easily, it's not a history that's just easily found online if you want to learn about the history of Mono versus Stereo. So we got some, maybe me, someone's got to update the, wikipedia page a little better <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah and as for i just want to mention the national tennis ep we talk about you know we honestly we hadn't thought about it that much until we started this podcast but it was really when we like looked at national tennis ep we're like wait this is a full record it's over half an hour it's yeah. something like 14 songs but they call it an ep and then it was like interviewing john schneck we kind of found figured out that maybe the idea was like they, you know, they had an album's worth of material, but like they, the, I mean, now I'm extrapolating from what you're telling me and what John Schneck told us, but it's like, it seems like maybe they just didn't want the Nashville tennis EP to be considered album number six, maybe like they were really, yeah, he was, he was really, yeah. So, okay. That kind of confirms that theory I've had forever. But, you know, yeah. But a lot of us wish they would have, because it was just such a departure sonically. And it was, it's, 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 there's so many great songs on that record that I feel like are overlooked in the band's catalog. Yeah. Um, and it took me a while I to even. Because... No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it took me years 
to really hone in on the fact that the first half of the record is all new. I mean, I think everyone kind of knows that in general, because that's like the press releases said when it came out, but the fact that the cover is just bird and the B sides, it kind of like masks something in your brain. It kind of accidentally like gaslights you into thinking like the whole album is B sides. Even if you know, the first half is all new. Even if you know, they mentioned Ethan who had just joined the band on that first half, like it's still, makes it not feel like an album. It makes it feel like a collection, even though half of it is brand new. That's what made the vinyl release of the Nashville Tennessee P just a few years ago so much fun for us because it was like, okay, we're just honoring that part of the Bird and the B-Sides record as just its own thing, right? Like we just were able to release the Nashville Tennessee P just as those songs on a piece of vinyl. And it's a lot of fun just to listen to that section of it as just its own release, you know? Mm-hmm. So. So uh, I was curious, what is the what is the status of mono versus stereo today? Because, though you know, there's still a website up. It, bench, it has like the recent Reliant K stuff on there. But I noticed like sometimes when you look at like uh, streaming for any of those earlier mono versus stereo records, they all just say copyright goatee records. I don't know if that's significant at all. Is mono versus stereo maybe like more absorbed by goatee now? I mean, all the all the copyright stuff, you know, when you look at Spotify and Apple, that's just, it's more just an ownership thing, you know, and I see. Goatee always owned Mono versus Stereo, you know, they were the ones that funded the label. Um, but where Mono versus Stereo exists nowadays, it's just whenever Reliant K wants to put out a record or a song or an EP, that that label exists for that purpose. Gotcha. So, um, it's always there to, to help them put out whatever they, they want to release, you know, so. I yeah. see. Okay. I also have a like a, a, a off topic to this, although it's still on the topic of vinyl. Can you tell me? No, nobody. I've I've been asking people online, and no one has given me a definitive answer. But you're closer to the source, so I feel like you must have an answer for me. How do you pronounce S M L X L vinyl? Just like that. You say you you XL vinyl. You you spell it out, okay? Because like. We, from the beginning of our podcast, we were asking like fans and hoping like someone who actually is in the know would answer, but we've like never had an actual <laughs> definitive answer that you just say the letters. People assume it might be Smixel or something, but now I'm learning yeah, that. If, it's, it's it's sizes. It's small, medium, large, extra large. Right. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if it's actually like a fake word, like if, it, if it's being put together like a, like a phonetic word, but I'm glad to actually finally get a definitive answer. Um, yep, SML XL. It was actually a label that was started in under Goatee in 1998 or 1999, and they started it with an artist named Matt Beckler, and it was supposed to go through a different distribution channel than what Goatee was going through, and only ever had one release. And okay. so, when we decided to start the vinyl company a few years ago, we just needed to come up with a different name, and we're like, "Well, we just go back to this name, you know? It's and it's a vinyl for all sizes. There's different sizes of vinyl. There's a seven inch, there's a ten inch, there's a twelve inch. It kind of fits, you know? So, yep. Gotcha. Okay, I'm glad to finally know that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, um, the way you know we we got in touch online is because uh, I guess. What do you do specifically now with, with uh, Goatee? Because it seems like you run all the social media, right? Like that's where I originally talked to you was through the DMs of the Goatee uh, Instagram. So are you, do you run the socials? So uh, because I've been a Goatee for 20 plus years, there's, not, there's a small staff, there's five of us. I, I A&R half the roster and another person A&Rs the other half of the roster. Um, and even as an A&R, you're still kind of co-A&R with Toby. 
So I okay. work with Ryan Stevenson, Cochrane and Company, Tarion, uh, a new artist named Richland. Um, and, but then I also do other things because again, we're a small company. So I'm in charge of our radio division. And then, yeah, I, I'm in charge of our social networks. So um, gotcha. jack of all trades, I try to be, um, yeah. but it's all of us at our company. We all do five or four or five different things on a daily basis. That sounds cool. I mean, that it's like, uh, was Goatee always like as sort of small as it is, is like tight knit? Is it always been like? Very a... much so. Okay. Yep. We're a family. We call it the Goatee fam for a reason. And it's because it's we're tight knit. I mean, Toby and Joey who started Goatee are cousins, you know? And so it's been a family business since day one. So. Gotcha. That's great. I mean, my my wife worked at Forefront Records, which is where DC Talk and Toby put out his records and still does. Right. She worked at Goatee for a little bit. Um, uh, I'm trying, I mean, there's just so much, there's so many family vibes to what we do at Goatee. You know, um, we're just, you know, we're five people in a small house in Franklin, Tennessee, which is just south of Nashville. Um, we're right down the road from Toby's house and Toby's management company. Um, yeah, man, we're just, we're a family company. You know, we're independent. We're not, Nobody owns Goatee Records except Toby and Joey. There's no financial backing coming from anywhere else. No hidden investor in Sweden or no corporate record label gotcha. in LA or New York. It's just us in this little house bugging it out every day. That's cool. That's cool to know. Now that I think about it, uh, you know, it comes up all the time looking at Reliant K uh, interviews where uh, it comes up the way in which they moved to Capital was like it was the same contract because Goatee was part of the same parent company right uh, i i always get the facts wrong so correct me if i'm wrong but it's like emi or something yeah. like that correct oh, sorry, go, yeah so go ahead 2002 to so from 2002 to 2007 goatee was uh capital records owned 25 percent of goatee and they were That's distributing our records at the time so when the band was making mm-hmm, i mean all the way up until about i mean the record came out in november was it november 4th mm-hmm. november 4th is that right um, I think it was all the way up until October. If, if you actually look at the first pressings of, mm-hmm, it's only got the goatee logo on it. And it wasn't until a couple weeks later, uh, that the record had the Capitol logo on it. And that was because Capitol really did not come on board until about like September, October of 2004. Um, and we licensed that mm-hmm record to Capitol. Um, and then they completely owned the five score record. We still had Christian distribution, but Capital owned the mainstream distribution on that record. I see. Um, and then, you know, then their deal was done and then they came back to go to you. So. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, yeah, I, I always uh, hear this just from being specific to Reliant K on this podcast. We hear the story often about the way in which they went to and then eventually left Capital. But it's interesting to also get the side of that from Goatee's uh, perspective of you know, being uh, part of that company, being 25% owned by them for that time, and then pretty much going independent, you know, separating off the same time Reliant K did. Uh, that's uh, cool yeah. to learn. And, you know, the same thing sort of happened for Forget Not Slow Down. They had re-signed to, to go to records. They were putting their records out on Mono versus Stereo. They made that record with us. Um, and then after the record was done, Sony got really interested in the album and wanted to put it out. And so we still maintain Christian distribution and a bunch of other things. And Sony put the record out everywhere else, you know, gotcha. that lasted for just that one record. And then everything else was back with us. Cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause it always says, I always notice it says jive. It's jive, jive records on the yeah, back. That was, yeah. That was, 
Yeah, that's, yeah, Sony, RCA, Jive, yep. Okay, okay. Yeah, finally, some of these things are coming together. <laughs> it's only taken it's a year and a half of us doing this podcast. But, like, a band like Reliant K, like, you know, it, it's all kind of oral history. Like, you got to piece it together through all these different sources and stuff. There's not just, like, you know, there's no larger historical works on Reliant K or anything. So it's been, like, this slow climb of trying to track, like, all this history. Um, and some stories are told more often than like other details. So it's great to finally get some of these answers. Uh, and speaking well, of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, it'd be fun to do some type of book or documentary in the band someday. They'll never allow that. Oh, okay. <laughs> because, you know, they, they've never, you know, look, they, they don't view themselves as like, you know, some big band. They're just regular right. guys, you know what I mean? And they've always been so connected to their fan base and just humble and grateful for what, has happened in their lives you know and yeah um they never were rock stars you know i mean they just they just love playing music and putting it out and playing shows you know and yeah. um and so for them to talk about themselves in any kind of sense like that is just weird for them you know so, yeah because they never they never viewed themselves as some big deal or anything even though i think Tyson's one of the best songwriters i've ever like just incredible incredible songwriter yeah so, yeah, we just did uh, Be My Escape on the show and we I found this one interview where the interviewer is like saying like, oh, Be My Escape, it's, it's you know, it's it's a big hit for you guys. And Tyson like is completely humble about the answer. He's like, oh, you know, some songs are better than the others, but I don't know if this is a hit for us. I don't know. He was like totally playing down the idea that the band had like this big hit relative to their success so far. And he was like reticent to call it an actual like radio hit, even while it was happening. And I thought that, you know, I thought that was like just so Tyson from what, you know, I understand of him. It is. That's very yeah. much who he is. So. Um, well, I have one question that was sent in from our Twitter for you. And this is from a John mm -hmm. Schneck. And he asks, <laughs> <laughs> and he asks uh, to ask you who you drove to Memphis with to see Pearl Jam. And if you were mad that you kept falling asleep on the way. I love that John and I, that was a great moment because, you know, Pearl Jam's a top, top five band for me all time. And it's John's number one band of all time. Okay. And they were, they were like a unicorn for me. Every time I tried to see them live, something got in the way. Finances, just something always happened in life. And when they came to play Memphis in 2014, John never, never gotten to see them live because of touring and things like that. And so we both drove out together to see them and it was, it was awesome. He didn't fall asleep on the way out there. He may have fallen asleep on the way back, but um, it was a great show. And him and I just had a great time together. So he's a good buddy. That's great. Yeah. He's uh, yeah. We had, like I mentioned earlier, but we had him on the show and he was great. And he was like supported us on Twitter and stuff and, and then listened to early, some episodes early on. So he's, he's great. Um, I do. Yeah. I love all your guys' <laughs> memes and stuff. I mean, I, all some of the memes you guys post are hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so, they're so good. And then there's so much fun stuff on YouTube. It's also easy to fill out our social media by finding people, uh, you know, fans works from like 15 years of YouTube of people making fan videos and covers and like, you know, cutting together anime music videos and stuff. There's so much out there. They've the band touch has touched so many people that it's just it. And that's one of the main driving forces of our podcast. Every, and the second half of every episode, we just look at, what people have done online with every song. So yeah, it's, it's, it's great to, 
to just do that kind of stuff in online and, and meet people who like the memes that we're making and enjoy the stuff that we're finding and sharing. And I'm glad yeah, you liked it as well. Yeah. No, they're hilarious, man. And look, man, it's good. I mean, I love that you're doing this. I love that you're honoring the guys catalog of songs and decent songwriting. I think it's great. You know, I just, I've got nothing but respect for those guys and I'm blessed to call them friends. And they were just so instrumental early on uh, for me with the start of Monterey Stereo. I mean, just, mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of weird stuff, man. I mean, Hoops is the one doing a little bit of a background vocal coder thing on the end of the Evan Anthem record. And then the Evan Anthem backed up Thiessen on a solo song for the second Mono vs. Stereo compilation. I mean, he sang background vocals on the Evan Anthem song on that second Mono vs. Stereo compilation. And they switched song titles. If you actually read the lyrics to the songs, they're saying the other thing about the other song. Oh, like, wow. There's just all this weird, deep level nerd stuff, but it was because we were all just hanging out and we were friends and all working together. And it was just a lot of fun, man. So, yeah. um, and the Reliant K guys are just some of the best people. And um, yeah, man. So yeah. good job. Keep doing the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I got to give Ryan K credit as well. Like the fact that they're them existing aside from the fact that they like touch so many people and they're so great to the family and community around them. Uh, my co-host isn't here today. She's actually not feeling well. So she's laying down, but my wife who I host the show with part of the reason we even became friends. One of the first conversations we had was Reliant K. So that's, and we, then we got married. <laughs> so part of it, that was like one of the natural reasons why we felt like it, it, it made sense for us to do a Reliant K podcast together. So it's like a lot of positive good that's in awesome. the world, them just being uh, a band. Yeah. So um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, did, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. And oh, uh, so yeah. if, where can people, uh, what should people do to uh, follow you or check you out? Do you have anything you specifically want to plug? No, nah, man. I mean, I just, the only thing I would say right now, man, is if you're a fan of a band, go buy some merchandise, go buy a piece of vinyl, go buy something from an artist that you love because artists need it right now. Touring is not really happening and right. artists, your musicians that you love need their, they need your support. So go buy a piece of merchandise, go vinyl, go buy a vinyl, go buy a live stream. I just, my wife and I did the Jimmy World uh, Bleed American and Future live streams or Clarity, mm-hmm. it was Clarity and Futures. Um, go buy those things, man, watch them support your artists that you love so much and that have impacted your life. So that would be my statement. Well, uh, thank you very much. Thanks again for your time. You're welcome, man. Anything for you guys. We appreciate it. Yep. Thanks.